The Ghost of Art from Reprinted Pieces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. The Ghost of Art from Reprinted Pieces by Charles Dickens. I am a bachelor residing in rather a dreary set of chambers in the temple. They are situated in a square court of high houses, which would be a complete well, but for the want of water and the absence of a bucket. I live at the top of the house, among the tiles and sparrows. Like the little man in the nursery story, I live by myself, and all the bread and cheese I get, which is not much, I put upon a shelf. I need scarcely add, perhaps, that I am in love, and that the father of my charming Julia objects to our union. I mention these little particulars, as I might deliver a letter of introduction. The reader is now acquainted with me, and perhaps will condescend to listen to my narrative. I am naturally of a dreamy turn of mind, and my abundant leisure, for I am called to the bar-coupled with much lonely listening to the twittering of sparrows, and the pattering of rain, has encouraged that disposition. In my top set I hear the wind howl on a winter night, when the man on the ground floor believes it is perfectly still weather. The dim lamps with which our honourable society, supposed to be as yet unconscious of the new discovery called gas, make the horrors of the staircase visible, deepen the gloom which generally settles on my soul when I go home at night. I am in the law, but not of it. I can't exactly make out what it means. I sit in Westminster Hall sometimes, in character, from ten to four, and when I go out of court I don't know whether I am standing on my wig or my boots. It appears to me, I mention this in confidence, as if there were too much talk and too much law, as if some grains of truth were started overboard into a tempestuous sea of chaff. All this may make me mystical. Still, I am confident that what I am going to describe myself as having seen and heard, I actually did see and hear. It is necessary that I should observe that I have a great delight in pictures. I am no painter myself, but I have studied pictures and written about them. I have seen all the most famous pictures in the world. My education and reading have been sufficiently general to possess me beforehand, with a knowledge of most of the subjects to which a painter is likely to have recourse, and, although I might be in some doubt as to the rightful fashion of the scabbard of King Lear's sword, for instance, I think I should know King Lear tolerably well if I happened to meet with him. I go to all the modern exhibitions every season, and of course I revere in the Royal Academy. I stand by its forty academical articles almost as firmly as I stand by the thirty-nine articles of the Church of England. I am convinced that in neither case could there be, by any rightful possibility, one article more or less. It is now exactly three years, three years ago this very month, since I went from Westminster to the Temple one Thursday afternoon in a cheap steamboat. The sky was black when I imprudently walked on board. It began to thunder and lighten immediately afterwards, and the rain poured down in torrents. 
the deck seeming to smoke with the wet, I went below. But so many passengers were there, smoking too, that I came up again, and buttoning my pea-coat, and standing in the shadow of the paddle-box, stood as upright as I could, and made the best of it. It was at this moment that I first beheld the terrible being, who is the subject of my present recollections. Standing against the fennel, apparently with the intention of drying himself by the heat as fast as he got wet, was a shabby man in threadbare black, and with his hands in his pockets, who fascinated me from the memorable instant when I caught his eye. Where had I caught that eye before? Who was he? Why did I connect him, all at once, with the vicar of Wakefield, Alfred the Great, Gil Blas, Charles the Second, Joseph and his brethren, the Fairy Queen, Tom Jones, the Decameron of Boccaccio, Tom O'Shanta, the marriage of the Dodge of Venice with the Adriatic, and the Great Plague of London. Why, when he bent one leg, and placed one hand upon the back of the seat near him, did my mind associate him wildly with the words, Number 142, Portrait of a Gentleman? Could it be that I was going mad? I looked at him again, and now I could have taken my affidavity that he belonged to the vicar of Wakefield's family. Whether he was the vicar, or Moses, or Mr. Burchill, or the squire, or a conglomeration of all four, I knew not. But I was impelled to seize him by the throat and charge him with being, in some fell way, connected with the primrose blood. He looked up at the rain, and then, oh heaven, he became St. John. He folded his arms, resigning himself to the weather, and I was frantically inclined to address him as a spectator, and firmly demand to know what he had done with Sir Roger de Coverley. The frightful suspicion that I was becoming deranged returned upon me with redoubled force. Meantime, this awful stranger, inexplicably linked to my distress, stood drying himself at the funnel, and ever, as the steam rose from his clothes, diffusing a mist around him. I saw through the ghostly medium all the people I have mentioned, and a score more, sacred and profane. I am conscious of a dreadful inclination that stole upon me, as it thundered and lightened, to grapple with this man, or demon, and plunge him over the side. But I constrained myself, I know not how, to speak to him, and in a pause of the storm I crossed the deck and said, "'What are you?' he replied hoarsely. "'A model.' "'A what?' said I. "'A model,' he replied. "'I set to the profession for a bob an hour.' All through this narrative I give his own words, which are indelibly imprinted on my memory. The relief which this disclosure gave me, the exquisite delight of the restoration of my confidences in my own sanity, I cannot describe. I should have fallen on his neck, but for the consciousness of being observed by the man at the wheel. "'You, then,' said I, shaking him so warmly by the hand, that I wrung the rein out of his coat-cuff, "'are the gentlemen whom I have so frequently contemplated, in connection with a high-backed chair with a red cushion, and a table with twisted legs?' "'I am that model,' he rejoined moodily, "'and I wish I was anything else.' "'Say not so,' I returned. "'I have seen you in the society of many beautiful young women.' "'As in truth I had, and always.' I now remember, in the act of making the most of his legs. No doubt, said he, 
and you've seen me along with vases of flowers, and any number of table-kivers, and antique cabinets, and various gammon. Sir, said I, and various gammon, he repeated in a louder voice, you might have seen me in armour, too, if you had looked sharp. Blessed if I hadn't stood in half the suit of armour as ever came out of Pratt's shop, and sat, for weeks together, a-eating nothing out of half the gold and silver dishes as has ever been lent to the purpose of the Storuses, and Mortimerses, and Garretses, and Davenportses. Excited, as it appeared, by a sense of injury, I thought he would never have found an end for the last word, but at length it rolled sullenly away with the thunder. "'Pardon me,' said I. "'You are a well-favoured, well-made man, and yet, forgive me, I find, on examining my mind, that I associate you with, that my recollection indistinctly makes you, in short, excuse me, a kind of powerful monster.' "'It would be a wonder if it didn't,' he said. "'Do you know what my points are?' "'No,' said I. "'My throat and my legs,' said he. When I don't set for a head, I mostly sets for a throat and a pair of legs. Now, granted you was a painter and was to work at my throat for a week together, I suppose you'd see a lot of lumps and bumps there that would never be there at all if you looked at me complete instead of only my throat, wouldn't you? Probably, said I, serving him. Why, it stands to reason, said the model. Work another week at my legs and it'll be the same thing. You'll make em out as knotty and as knobbly as last, as if they were the trunks of two old trees. Then, take and stick my legs and throat onto another man's body, and you'll make him a regular monster. And that's the way the public gets their regular monsters, every first Monday in May, when the Royal Academy exhibition opens. You are a critic, said I, with an air of deference. I'm in an uncommon ill humour, if that's it, rejoined the model with a great indignation as if it weren't bad enough for a bummer hour for a man to be mixing himself up with that there jolly old furniture that one ud think the public know the very nails in by this time or to be putting on greasy old hats and cloaks and playing tambourines in the bay of naples with the vesuvius a-smoking according to pattern in the background and the wines a-bearing wonderful in the middle distance or to be unpolitely kicking up his legs among a lot of gals with no reason whatever in his mind but to show em as if this weren't bad enough, I'm to go and be thrown out of employment, too. Surely not, said I. Surely yes, said the indignant model. But I'll grow one. The gloomy and threatening manner in which he muttered the last words can never be effaced from my remembrance. My blood ran cold. I asked of myself, what was it that this desperate being was resolved to grow? My breast made no response. I ventured to implore him to explain this meaning. With a scornful laugh, he uttered his dark prophecy. I'll grow one, and mark my words. It shall haunt you. We parted in the storm, after I had forced half a crown on his acceptance, with a trembling hand. I conclude that something supernatural happened to the steamboat, as it bore his reeking figure down the river but it never got into the papers. Two years elapsed, during which I followed my profession without any vicissitudes, never holding so much as a motion, of course. At the expiration of that period, I found myself making my way home to the temple, 
one night, in precisely such another storm of thunder and lightning as that by which I had been overtaken on board the steamboat, except that this storm, bursting over the town at midnight, was rendered much more awful by the darkness and the hour. As I turned into my court, I really thought a thunderbolt would fall, and blow the pavement up. Every brick and stone in the place seemed to have an echo of its own for the thunder. The water-spouts were overcharged, and the rain came tearing down from the house-tops as if they had been mountain-tops. Mrs. Parkins, my laundress, wife of Parkins the porter, then newly dread of a dropsy, had particular instructions to place a bedroom candle and a match under the staircase lamp on my landing, in order that I might light my candle there, whenever I came home. Mrs. Parkins, invariably disregarding all instructions, they were never there. Thus it happened that on this occasion I groped my way into my sitting-room to find a candle, and came out to light it. What were my emotions when, underneath the staircase lamp, shining with wet as if he had never been tried since our last meeting, stood the mysterious being whom I had encountered on the steamboat in a thunderstorm two years before? His prediction rushed up on my mind, and I turned faint. I'd said I'd do it, he observed in a hollow voice, and I have done it. May I come in? Misguided creature, what have you done? I returned. I'll let you know, what his reply, if you'll let me in. Could it be murder that he had done? And had he been so successful that he wanted to do it again at my expense? I hesitated. "'May I come in?' said he. I inclined my head, with as much presence of mind as I could command, and he followed me into my chambers. There I saw that the lower part of his face was tied up in what is commonly called a belchis handkerchief. He slowly removed this bandage, and exposed to view a long dark beard, curling over his upper lip, twisting about the corners of his mouth, and hanging down upon his breasts. "'What is this?' I exclaimed involuntarily. "'And what have you become?' "'I am the ghost of art,' said he. The effect of these words, slowly uttered in the thunderstorm at midnight, was appalling in the last degree. More dead than alive, I surveyed him in silence. "'I am the ghost of art.' "'The German taste came up,' said he, "'and threw me out of bread.' I am ready for the taste now. He made his beard a little jagged with his hands, folded his arms, and said, Severity. I shuddered. It was so severe. He made his beard flowing on his breast, and, leaning both hands on the staff of a carpet-broom which Mrs. Parkins had left among my books, said, Benevolence. I stood transfixed. The change of sentiment was entirely in the bed. The man might have left his face alone, or had no face. The bed did everything. He lay down on his back, on my table, and with that action of his head threw up his bed at a chin. "'That's death,' said he. He got off my table, and, looking up at the ceiling, cocked his bed a little awry, at the same time making it stick out before him. "'Adjuration, or a vow of vengeance.' he observed. He turned his profile to me, 
making his upper lip very bulky with the upper part of his beard. "'Romantic character,' said he. He looked sideways out of his beard, as if it were an ivy bush. "'Jealousy,' said he. He gave it an ingenious twist in the air, and informed me that he was carousing. He made it shaggy with his fingers, and it was despair, lank, and it was avarice, tossed it all kinds of ways, and it was rage. The bed did everything. "'I am the ghost of art,' said he. Two bob a day now, and more when it's longer. Here's the true expression. There's no other. I said I'd grow it, and I've grown it, and it shall haunt you. He may have tumbled downstairs in the dark, but he never walked down or ran down. I looked over the banister, and I was alone with the thunder. Need I add more of my terrific fate? It has haunted me ever since. It glares upon me from the walls of the Royal Academy except when Maclise subdues it to his genius. It fills my soul with terror at the British institution. It lures young artists on to their destruction. Go where I will, the ghost of art, eternally working the passions in hair, and expressing everything by beard, pursues me. The prediction is accomplished, and the victim has no rest. End of The Ghost of Art Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway, the 19th of May, 2012. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Out of Town. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. Out of Town. From Reprinted Pieces by Charles Dickens. Sitting on a bright September morning among my books and papers at my open window on the cliff overhanging the sea-beach, I have the sky and ocean framed before me like a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture, but with such movement in it, such changes of light upon the sails of ships and wake of steamboats, such dazzling gleams of silver far out at sea such fresh touches on the crisp wave-tops as they break and roll towards me a picture with such music in the billowy rush upon the shingle the blowing of morning wind through the corn-sheaves where the farmers wagons are busy the singing of the larks and the distant voices of children at play such charms of sight and sound as all the galleries on earth can but poorly suggest so dreamy is the murmur of the sea below my window that i may have been here for anything i know one hundred years 
not that i have grown old for daily on the neighbouring downs and grassy hillsides i find that i can still in reason walk any distance jump over anything and climb up anywhere but that the sound of the ocean seems to have become so customary to my musings and other realities seem so to have gone aboard ship and floated away over the horizon that for aught i will undertake to the contrary i am the enchanted son of the king my father shut up in a tower on the seashore for protection against an old she-goblin who insisted on being my godmother and who foresaw at the font wonderful creature that i should get into a scrape before i was twenty-one i remember to have been in a city my royal parents dominions i suppose and apparently not long ago either that was in the dreariest condition the principal inhabitants had all been changed into old newspapers and in that form were preserving their window-blinds from dust and wrapping all their smaller household gods in curl-papers i walked through gloomy streets where every house was shut up and newspapered and where my solitary footsteps echoed on the deserted pavements in the public rides there were no carriages no horses no animated existence but a few sleepy policemen and a few adventurous boys taking advantage of the devastation to swarm up the lamp-posts in the westward streets there was no traffic in the westward shops no business the water-patterns which the prentices had trickled out on the pavements early in the morning remained uneffaced by human feet at the corners of mews cochin china fowls stalked gaunt and savage nobody being left in the deserted city as it appeared to me to feed them public houses where splendid footmen swinging their legs over gorgeous hammercloths beside wigged coachmen were wont to regale were silent and the unused pewter pots shone too bright for business on the shelves I beheld a punch's show leaning against a wall near Park Lane as if it had fainted. It was deserted, and there were none to heed its desolation. In Belgrave Square I met the last man, an ostler, sitting on a post in a ragged red waistcoat, eating straw and mildewing away. If I recollect the name of the little town on whose shore this sea is murmuring, but I am not just now, as I have premised, to be relied upon for anything, it is Pavilionstone. Within a quarter of a century it was a little fishing town, and they do say that the time was when it was a little smuggling town. I have heard that it was rather famous in the Hollands and Brandy way, and that coevally with that reputation the lamplighters was considered a bad life at the assurance offices it was observed that if he were not particular about lighting up he lived in peace but that if he made the best of the oil lamps in the steep and narrow streets he usually fell over the cliff at an early age now gas and electricity run to the very water's edge and the Southeastern Railway Company screech at us in the dead of night. But the old little fishing and smuggling town remains, 
and is so tempting a place for the latter purpose, that I think of going out some night next week in a fur cap and a pair of petticoat trousers, and running an empty tub as a kind of archaeological pursuit. Let nobody with corns come to Pavilionstone, for there are breakneck flights of ragged steps connecting the principal streets by backways, which will cripple that visitor in half an hour. These are the ways by which, when I run that tub, I shall escape. I shall make a thermopylae of the corner of one of them, defend it with my cutlass against the coast-guard until my brave companions have sheared off, then dive into the darkness and regain my Susan's arms. In connection with these breakneck steps I observe some wooden cottages, with tumble-down outhouses and back-yards three feet square, adorned with garlands of dried fish, in one of which though the general board of health might object, my Susan dwells. The South-Eastern Company have brought Pavilionstone into such vogue, with their tidal trains and splendid steam-packets, that a new Pavilionstone is rising up. I am myself of new Pavilionstone. We are a little mortary and limey at present, but we are getting on capitally. Indeed, we were getting on so fast at one time that we rather overdid it, and built a street of shops, the business of which may be expected to arrive in about ten years. We are sensibly laid out in general, and with a little care and pains, by no means wanting so far, shall become a very pretty place. We ought to be, for our situation is delightful our air is delicious, and our breezy hills and downs, carpeted with wild thyme, and decorated with millions of wild flowers, are, on the face of a pedestrian, perfect. In New Pavilionstone we are a little too much addicted to small windows with more bricks in them than glass, and we are not over-fanciful in the way of decorative architecture, and we get unexpected sea-views through cracks in the street doors. On the whole, however, we are very snug and comfortable, and well accommodated. But the Home Secretary, if there be such an officer, cannot too soon shut up the burial ground of the old parish church. It is in the midst of us, and Pavilionstone will get no good of it if it be too long left alone. The Lion of Pavilionstone is its great hotel. A dozen years ago, going over to Paris by southeastern tidal steamer, you used to be dropped upon the platform of the main-line Pavilionstone station, not a junction then, at eleven o'clock on a dark winter's night in a roaring wind, and in the howling wilderness outside the station was a short omnibus which brought you up by the forehead the instant you got in at the door, and nobody cared about you, and you were alone in the world. You bumped over infinite chalk until you were turned out at a strange building which had just left off being a barn without having quite begun to be a house, where nobody expected your coming or knew what to do with you when you were come, and where you were usually blown about until you happened to be blown against the cold beef and finally into bed. At five in the morning you were blown out of bed and after a dreary breakfast with crumpled company, in the midst of confusion, 
were hustled on board a steamboat and lay wretched on deck until you saw france lunging and surging at you with great vehemence over the bowsprit now you come down to pavilionstone in a free and easy manner an irresponsible agent made over in trust to the southeastern company until you get out of the railway carriage at high water mark if you are crossing by the boat at once you have nothing to do but walk on board and be happy there if you can i can't if you are going to our great pavilionstone hotel the sprightliest porters under the sun whose cheerful looks are a pleasant welcome shoulder your luggage drive it off in vans bowl it away in trucks and enjoy themselves in playing athletic games with it if you are for public life at our great pavilionstone hotel you walk into that establishment as if it were your club and find ready for you your newsroom dining-room smoking-room billiard-room music-room public breakfast public dinner twice a day one plain one gorgeous hot baths and cold baths if you want to be bored there are plenty of bores always ready for you and from saturday to monday in particular you can be bored if you like it through and through should you want to be private at our great pavilionstone hotel say but the word look at the list of charges choose your floor name your figure there you are established in your castle by the day week month or year innocent of all comers or goers unless you have my fancy for walking early in the morning down the groves of boots and shoes which so regularly flourish at all the chamber doors before breakfast that it seems to me as if nobody ever got up or took them in are you going across the alps and would you like to air your italian at our great pavilionstone hotel talk to the manager always conversational accomplished and polite do you want to be aided abetted comforted or advised at our great pavilionstone hotel send for the good landlord and he is your friend should you or any one belonging to you ever be taken ill at our great pavilionstone hotel you will not soon forget him or his kind wife and when you pay your bill at our great pavilionstone hotel you will not be put out of humour by anything you find in it a thoroughly good inn in the days of coaching and posting was a noble place but no such inn would have been equal to the reception of four or five hundred people all of them wet through and half of them dead sick every day in the year this is where we shine in our pavilionstone hotel again who coming and going pitching and tossing boating and training hurrying in and flying out could ever have calculated the fees to be paid at an old-fashioned house in our pavilionstone hotel vocabulary there is no such word as fee everything is done for you every service is provided at a fixed and reasonable charge all the prices are hung up in all the rooms and you can make out your own bill beforehand as well as the bookkeeper in the case of your being a pictorial artist desirous of studying at small expense the physiognomies and beards of different nations come on receipt of this to pavilionstone you shall find all the nations of the earth and all the styles of shaving and not shaving hair cutting and hair letting alone for ever flowing through our hotel 
couriers you shall see by hundreds fat leathern bags for five-franc pieces closing with violent snaps like discharges of firearms by thousands more luggage in a morning than fifty years ago all europe saw in a week looking at trains steamboats sick travellers and luggage is our great pavilionstone recreation we are not strong in other public amusements we have a literary and scientific institution and we have a working men's institution may it hold many gypsy holidays in summer fields with the kettle boiling the band of music playing and the people dancing and may i be on the hillside looking on with pleasure at a wholesome sight too rare in england and we have two or three churches and more chapels than i have yet added up but public amusements are scarce with us if a poor theatrical manager comes with his company to give us in a loft mary backs or the murder on the sandhills we don't care much for him starve him out in fact we take more kindly to wax-work especially if it moves in which case it keeps much clearer of the second commandment than when it is still cook's circus mr cook is my friend and always leaves a good name behind him gives us only a night in passing through nor does the travelling menagerie think us worth a longer visit it gave us a look-in the other day bringing with it the residentiary van with the stained-glass windows which her majesty kept ready-made at windsor castle until she found a suitable opportunity of submitting it for the proprietor's acceptance i brought away five wonderments from this exhibition i have wondered ever since whether the beasts ever do get used to those small places of confinement whether the monkeys have that very horrible flavour in their free state whether wild animals have a natural ear for time and tune and therefore every four-footed creature began to howl in despair when the band began to play what the giraffe does with his neck when his cart is shut up and whether the elephant feels ashamed of himself when he is brought out of his den to stand on his head in the presence of the whole collection we are a tidal harbour at pavilionstone as indeed i have implied already in my mention of tidal trains at low water we are a heap of mud with an empty channel in it where a couple of men in big boots always shovel and scoop with what exact object i am unable to say at that time all the stranded fishing-boats turn over on their sides as if they were dead marine monsters the colliers and other shipping stick disconsolate in the mud the steamers look as if their white chimneys would never smoke more and their red paddles never turn again the green sea-slime and weed upon the rough stones at the entrance seem records of obsolete high tides never more to flow the flagstaff halyards droop the very little wooden lighthouse shrinks in the idle glare of the sun and here i may observe of the very little wooden lighthouse that when it is lighted at night red and green it looks so like a medical man's that several distracted husbands have at various times been found on occasions of premature domestic anxiety going round and round it trying to find the night-bell but the moment the tide begins to make 
the pavilionstone harbour begins to revive it feels the breeze of the rising water before the water comes and begins to flutter and stir when the little shallow waves creep in barely overlapping one another the veins at the mastheads wake and become agitated as the tide rises the fishing boats get into good spirits and dance the flagstaff hoists a bright red flag the steamboat smokes cranes creak horses and carriages dangle in the air stray passengers and luggage appear now the shipping is afloat and comes up buoyantly to look at the wharf now the carts that have come down for coals load away as hard as they can load now the steamer smokes immensely and occasionally blows at the paddle-boxes like a vaporous whale greatly disturbing nervous loungers now both the tide and the breeze have risen and you are holding your hat on if you want to see how the ladies hold their hats on with a stay passing over the broad brim and down the nose come to pavilionstone now everything in the harbour splashes dashes and bobs now the down tidal train is telegraphed and you know without knowing how you know that two hundred and eighty-seven people are coming now the fishing boats that have been out sail in at the top of the tide now the bell goes and the locomotive hisses and shrieks and the train comes gliding in and the two hundred and eighty-seven comes scuffling out now there is not only a tide of water but a tide of people and a tide of luggage all tumbling and flowing and bouncing about together now after infinite bustle the steamer steams out and we on the pier are all delighted when she rolls as if she would roll her funnel out and all are disappointed when she don't now the other steamer is coming in and the custom-house prepares and the wharf labourers assemble and the hawsers are made ready and the hotel porters come rattling down with van and truck eager to begin more olympic games with more luggage and this is the way in which we go on down at pavilionstone every tide and if you want to live a life of luggage or to see it lived or to breathe sweet air which will send you to sleep at a moment's notice at any period of the day or night or to disport yourself upon or in the sea or to scamper about kent or to come out of town for the enjoyment of all or any of these pleasures come to pavilionstone end of out of town by charles dickens sunday under three heads this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. Sunday Under Three Heads. A dedication and Chapter 1. By Charles Dickens. Dedication. To the Right Reverend, the Bishop of London my lord you were among the first some years ago to expatiate on the vicious addiction of the lower classes of society to sunday excursions and were thus instrumental in calling forth occasional demonstrations of those extreme opinions on the subject which are generally received with derision if not with contempt 
your elevated station, my lord, afford you countless opportunities of increasing the comforts and pleasures of the humbler classes of society, not by the expenditure of the smallest portion of your princely income, but by merely sanctioning with the influence of your example their harmless pastimes and innocent recreations. That your lordship would ever have contemplated Sunday recreations with so much horror, if you had been at all acquainted with the wants and necessities of the people who indulged in them, I cannot imagine possible. That a prelate of your elevated rank has the faintest conception of the extent of those wants and the nature of those necessities, I do not believe. For these reasons, I venture to address this little pamphlet to your lord's consideration. I am quite conscious that the outlines I have drawn afford but a very imperfect description of the feelings they are intended to illustrate. But I claim for them one merit, their truth and freedom from exaggeration. I may have fallen short of the mark, but I have never overshot it, and while I have pointed out what appears to me to be the injustice on the part of others, I hope I have carefully abstained from committing it myself. I am, my lord, your lordship's most obedient, humble servant, Timothy Sparks, June, 1836. Chapter 1. As it is. There are few things from which I derive greater pleasure than walking through some of the principal streets of London on a fine Sunday, in summer, and watching the cheerful faces of the lively groups with which they are thronged. There is something, to my eyes at least, exceedingly pleasing in the general desire evinced by the humbler classes of society to appear neat and clean on this, their only holiday. There are many grave old persons, I know, who shake their heads with an air of profound wisdom, and tell you that poor people dress too well nowadays, that when they were children, folks knew their stations in life better. That you may depend upon it, no good will come of this sort of thing in the end, and so forth. But I fancy I can discern in the fine bonnet of the working man's wife or the feather-bedizened hat of his child, no inconsiderable evidence of good feeling on the part of the man himself, and an affectionate desire to expend the few shillings he can spare from his week's wages in improving the appearance and adding to the happiness of those who are nearest and dearest to him. This may be a very heinous and unbecoming degree of vanity, perhaps, and the money might possibly be applied to better uses. It must not be forgotten, however, that it might very easily be devoted to worse, and if two or three faces can be rendered happy and contented by a trifling improvement of outward appearance, I cannot help thinking that the object is very cheaply purchased, even at the expense of a smart gown or a gaudy riband. There is a great deal of very unnecessary cant about the overdressing of the common people. There is not a manufacturer or tradesman in existence who would not employ a man who takes a reasonable degree of pride in the appearance of himself and those about him, in preference to a sullen, slovenly fellow, who works doggedly on, 
regardless of his own clothing and that of his wife and children, and seeming to take pleasure or pride in nothing. The pampered aristocrat, whose life is one continued round of licentious pleasures and sensual gratifications, or the gloomy enthusiast, who detests the cheerful amusements he can never enjoy, and envies the healthy feelings he can never know, who would put down the one and suppress the other, until he made the minds of his fellow-beings as besotted and distorted as his own. Neither of these men can possibly form an adequate notion of what Sunday really is to those whose lives are spent in sedentary or laborious occupations, and who are accustomed to look forward to it through their whole existence as their only day of rest from toil and innocent enjoyment. The sun that rises over the quiet streets of London on a bright Sunday morning shines till his setting on gay and happy faces. Here and there, so early as six o'clock, a young man and woman in their best attire may be seen hurrying along on their way to the house of some acquaintance who is included in their scheme of pleasure for the day, from whence, after stopping to take a bit of breakfast, they sally forth, accompanied by several old people and a whole crowd of young ones, bearing large hand-baskets full of provisions, and belcher handkerchiefs done up in bundles, with the neck of a bottle sticking out at the top, and closely packed apples bungling out at the sides, and away they hurry along the streets leading to the steam-packed wharves, which are already plentifully sprinkled with parties bound for the same destination. Their good humor and delight know no bounds, for it is a delightful morning, all blue overhead, and nothing like a cloud in the whole sky, and even the air of the river at London Bridge is something to them, shut up as they have been, all the week, in close streets and heated rooms. There are dozens of steamers to all sorts of places, Gravesend, Greenwich, and Richmond, and such number of people that when you have once sat down on the deck it is all but a moral impossibility to get up again, to say nothing of walking about, which is entirely out of the question. Away they go, joking and laughing, and eating and drinking, and admiring everything they see, and pleased with everything they hear, to climb Windmill Hill, and catch a glimpse of the rich cornfields and beautiful orchards of Kent, or to stroll along the fine old trees of Greenwich Park, and survey the wonders of Shooter's Hill and Lady James's Folly, or to glide past the beautiful meadows of Twickenham and Richmond, and to gaze with a delight which only people like them can know on every lovely object in the fair prospect around. A boat follows boat, and coach succeeds coach, for the next three hours, but all are filled, and all with the same kind of people, neat and clean, cheerful and contented. They reach their places of destination, and the taverns are crowded, but there is no drunkenness or brawling, for the class of men who commit the enormity of making Sunday excursions take their families with them, and this in itself would be a check upon them, even if they were inclined to dissipation which they really are not. Boisterous their mirth may be, for they have all the excitement of feeling that fresh air and green fields can impart to the dwellers in crowded cities, but it is innocent and harmless. The glass is circulated, and the joke goes round, but the one is free from excess, and the other from offence, 
and nothing but good humour and hilarity prevail. In streets like Holborn and Tottingham Court Road, which form the central market of a large neighbourhood, inhabited by a vast number of mechanics and poor people, a few shops are open at an early hour in the morning, and a very poor man, with a thin and sickly woman by his side, may be seen with their little basket in hand, purchasing the scanty quantity of necessaries they can afford, which the time at which the man receives his wages, or his having a good deal of work to do, or the woman's having been out charring till a late hour, prevented their procuring overnight. The coffee-shops, too, at which clerks and young men employed in counting-houses can procure their breakfasts, are also open. This class comprises, in a place like London, an enormous number of people, whose limited means prevent their engaging for their lodgings any apartment other than a bedroom, and who have consequently no alternative but to take their breakfast at a coffee-shop, or go without it altogether. All these places, however, are quickly closed, and by the time the church-bells begin to ring, all appearance of traffic has ceased. And then, what are the signs of immorality that meet the eye? Churches are well filled. The dissenters' chapels are crowded to suffocation. There is no preaching to empty benches, while the drunken and dissolute populace run riot in the streets. Here is a fashionable church, where the service commences at a late hour for the accommodation of such members of the congregation, and they are not a few, as may happen to have lingered in the opera far into the morning of the Sabbath, an excellent contrivance for poising the balance between God and mammon, and illustrating the ease with which a man's duties to both may be accommodated and adjusted. How the carriages rattle up, and deposit their richly dressed burdens beneath the lofty portico, the powdered footmen glide along the aisle, place the richly bound prayer-books on the pew-desks, slam the doors, and hurry away, leaving the fashionable members of the congregation to inspect each other through their glasses, and to dazzle and glitter in the eyes of the few shabby people in the free seats. The organ peals forth, the hired singers commence a short hymn, and the congregation condescendingly rise, stare about them, and converse in whispers. The clergyman enters the reading-desk, a young man of noble family and elegant demeanour, notorious at Cambridge for his knowledge of horse-flesh and dancers, and celebrated at Eton for his hopeless stupidity. The service commences. Mark the soft voice in which he reads, and the impressive manner in which he applies his white hand, studded with brilliance, to his perfumed hair. Observe the graceful emphasis with which he offers up the prayers for the king, the royal family, and all the nobility, and the nonchalance with which he hurries over the more uncomfortable portions of the service, the seventh commandment, for instance, with a studied regard for the taste and feeling of his auditors, only to be equalled by that displayed by the sleek divine who succeeds him, who murmurs, in a voice kept down by rich feeding, most comfortable doctrines for exactly twelve minutes, and then arrives at the anxiously expected, Now to God, which is the signal for the dismissal of the congregation. The organ is again heard. Those who have been asleep wake up, and those who have been kept awake smile and seem greatly relieved. Bows and congratulations are exchanged. The livery servants are all bustle and commotion. 
A bang go the steps, up jump the footmen, and off rattle the carriages, the inmates discoursing on the dresses of the congregation, and congratulating themselves on having set so excellent an example to the community in general, and Sunday pleasurers in particular. Enter a less orthodox place of worship, and observe the contrast. A small close chapel with a whitewashed wall and plain deal pews and pulpit contains a closely packed congregation, as different in dress as they are opposed in manner to that we have just quitted. The hymn is sung, not by paid singers, but by the whole assembly at the loudest pitch of their voices, unaccompanied by any musical instrument, the words being given out, two lines at a time, by the clerk. There is something in the sonorous quavering of the harsh voices, in the lank and hollow faces of the men, and the sour solemnity of the women, which bespeaks this a stronghold of intolerant zeal and ignorant enthusiasm. The preacher enters the pulpit. He is a coarse, hard-faced man of forbidding aspect, clad in rusty black, and bearing in his hand a small, plain Bible, from which he selects some passage for his text, while the hymn is concluding. The congregation fall upon their knees, and are hushed into profound stillness as he delivers an extempore prayer, in which he calls upon the sacred founder of the Christian faith to bless his ministry in terms of disgusting and impious familiarity not to be described. He begins his oration in a drawling tone, and his hearers listen with silent attention. He grows warmer as he proceeds with his subject, and his gesticulation becomes proportionately violent. He clenches his fists, beats the book upon the desk before him, and swings his arms wildly about his head. The congregation murmur their acquiescence in his doctrines, and a short groan occasionally bears testimony to the moving nature of his eloquence. Encouraged by these symptoms of approval, and working himself up to a pitch of enthusiasm amounting almost to frenzy, he denounces Sabbath-breakers with the direst vengeance of offended heaven. He stretches his body half out of the pulpit, thrusts forth his arms with frantic gestures, and blasphemously calls upon the Deity to visit with eternal torments those who turn aside from the word, as interpreted and preached by himself. A low moaning is heard. The women rock their bodies to and fro, and wring their hands. The preacher's fervor increases. The perspiration starts upon his brow, his face is flushed, and he clenches his hands convulsively as he draws a hideous and appalling picture of the horrors prepared for the wicked in a future state. A great excitement is visible among his hearers. A scream is heard, and some young girl falls senseless on the floor. There is a momentary rustle, but it is only for a moment. All eyes are turned toward the preacher. He pauses, passes his handkerchief across his face, and looks complacently round. His voice resumes its natural tone, as with mock humility he offers up a thanksgiving for having been successful in his efforts, and having been permitted to rescue one sinner from the path of evil. He sinks back into his seat exhausted with the violence of his ravings. The girl is removed. A hymn is sung. A petition for some measure for securing the better observance of the Sabbath, which has been prepared by the good man, is read. 
and his worshipping admirers struggle who shall be the first to sign it. But the morning service has concluded, and the streets are again crowded with people. Long rows of cleanly dressed charity children, preceded by a portly beadle and a withered schoolmaster, are returning to their welcome dinner, and it is evident, from the number of men with beer trays who are running from house to house, that no inconsiderable portion of the population are about to take theirs at this early hour. The baker's shops, in the humbler suburbs especially, are filled with men and women and children, each anxiously waiting for the Sunday dinner. Look at the group of children who surround that working man who has just emerged from the baker's shop at the corner of the street, with the reeking dish in which a diminutive joint of mutton simmers above a vast heap of half-browned potatoes. How the young rogues clap their hands and dance round their father, for very joy at the prospect of the feast, and how anxiously the youngest and chubbiest of the lot lingers on tiptoe by his side, trying to get a peep into the interior of the dish. They turn up the street, and the chubby-faced boy trots on as fast as his little legs will carry him, to herald the approach of the dinner to mother, who is standing with a baby in her arms on the doorstep, and who seems almost as pleased with the whole scene as the children themselves, whereupon baby, not precisely understanding the importance of the business at hand, but clearly perceiving that it is something unusually lively, kicks and crows most lustily, to the unspeakable delight of all the children and both parents, and the dinner is borne into the house amidst a shouting of small voices and jumping of fat legs, which would fill Sir Andrew Agnew with astonishment, as well it might, seeing that baronets, generally speaking, eat pretty comfortable dinners all the week through, and cannot be expected to understand what people feel, who only have a meat dinner on one day out of every seven. The bakings being all duly consigned to their respective owners, and the beer-man having gone his rounds, the church-bells ring for afternoon service. The shops are again closed, and the streets are more than ever thronged with people, some who have not been to church in the morning, going to it now, others who have been to church, going out for a walk, and others, let us admit the full measure of their guilt, a going for a walk, who have not been to church at all. I am afraid this smart servant of all work, who has been loitering at the corner of the square for the last ten minutes, is one of the latter class. She is evidently waiting for somebody, and though she may have made up her mind to go to church with him one of these mornings, I don't think they have any such intention on this particular afternoon. Here he is, at last, the white trousers, blue coat, and yellow waistcoat, and more especially that cock of the hat, indicate, as surely as inanimate objects can, that Chalk Farm, and not the parish church, is their destination. The girl colors up, and puts out her hand with a very awkward affectation of indifference. He gives it a gallant squeeze, and away they walk, arm in arm, the girl just looking back towards her place, with an air of conscious self-importance, and nodding to her fellow-servant, who has gone up to the two-pair-stairs window, to take full view of Mary's young man, which being communicated to William, he takes off his hat to the fellow-servant, a proceeding which affords unmitigated satisfaction to all parties, and impels the fellow-servant to inform Miss Emily, confidentially, in the course of the evening, that the young man as Mary keeps company with is one of the most genteelest young men as ever she see. The two young people, who have just crossed the road, 
and are following this happy couple down the street, are a fair specimen of another class of Sunday, pleasures. There is a dapper smartness, struggling through very limited means, about the young man, which induces one to set him down at once as a junior clerk to a tradesman or attorney. The girl no one could possibly mistake. You may tell a young woman in the employment of a large dressmaker, at any time, by a certain neatness of cheap finery and humble following of fashion, which pervade her whole attire. But unfortunately there are other tokens not to be misunderstood. The pale face, with its hectic bloom, the slight distortion of form which no artifice of dress can wholly conceal, the unhealthy stoop and the short cough, the effects of hard work and close application to a sedentary employment upon a tender frame. They turn towards the fields. The girl's countenance brightens, and an unwanted glow rises in her face. They are going to Hampstead, or Highgate, to spend their holiday afternoon in some place where they can see the sky, the fields, and trees, and breathe for an hour or two the pure air, which so seldom plays upon that poor girl's form, or exhilarates her spirits. I would to God that the iron-hearted man who would deprive such people as these of their only pleasures could feel the sinking of heart and soul, the wasting exhaustion of mind and body, the utter prostration of present strength and future hope, attendant upon that incessant toil which lasts from day to day and from month to month, that toil which is too often protracted until the silence of midnight and resumed with the first stir of morning. How marvellously would his ardent zeal for other men's souls diminish after a short probation, and how enlightened and comprehensive would his views of the real object and meaning of the institution of the Sabbath become! The afternoon is far advanced. The parks and public drives are crowded. Carriages, gigs, phaetons, stanhopes, and vehicles of every description glide smoothly on. The promenades are filled with loungers on foot, and the road is thronged with loungers on horseback. Persons of every class are crowded together, here, in one dense mass. The plebeian, who takes his pleasure on no day but Sunday, jostles the patrician, who takes his, from year's end to year's end. You look in vain for any outward signs of profligacy or debauchery. You see nothing before you but a vast number of people, the denizens of a large and crowded city, in the needful and rational enjoyment of air and exercise. It grows dusk. The roads leading from the different places of suburban resort are crowded with people on their return home, and the sound of merry voices rings through the gradually darkening fields. The evening is hot and sultry. The rich man throws open the sashes of his spacious dining-room and quaffs his iced wine in splendid luxury. The poor man, who has no rooms to take his meals in, but the close apartment to which he and his family have been confined throughout the week, sits in the tea-garden of some famous tavern, and drinks his beer in content and comfort. The fields and roads are gradually deserted. The crowd once more pour into the streets, and disperse to their several homes, and by midnight all is silent and quiet, save where a few stragglers linger beneath the window of some great man's house, to listen to the strains of music from within, or stop to gaze upon the splendid carriages which are waiting to convey the guests from the dinner-party of an earl. There is a darker side to this picture, on which, 
so far from it being any part of my purpose to conceal it i wish to lay particular stress in some parts of london and in many of the manufacturing towns of england drunkenness and profligacy in their most disgusting forms exhibit in the open streets on sunday a sad and degrading spectacle we need go no farther than st giles or drury lane for sights and scenes of a most repulsive nature women with scarcely the articles of apparel which common decency requires with forms bloated by disease and faces rendered hideous by habitual drunkenness men reeling and staggering along children in rags and filth whole streets of squalid and miserable appearance whose inhabitants are lounging in the public road fighting screaming and swearing these are the common objects which present themselves in these are the well-known characteristics of that portion of london to which i have just referred and why is it that all well-disposed persons are shocked and public decency scandalized by such exhibitions these people are poor that is notorious it may be said that they spend in liquor money with which they might purchase necessaries and there is no denying the fact but let it be remembered that even if they applied every farthing of their earnings in the best possible way they would still be very very poor their dwellings are necessarily uncomfortable and to a certain degree unhealthy cleanliness might do much but they are too crowded together the streets are too narrow and the rooms too small to admit of their ever being rendered desirable habitations they work very hard all the week we know that the effect of prolonged and arduous labor is to produce when a period of rest does arrive a sensation of lassitude which it requires the application of some stimulus to overcome what stimulus have they a sunday comes and with it a succession of labor how are they to employ the day what inducements have they to employ it in recruiting their stock of health they see little parties on pleasure excursions passing through the streets but they cannot imitate their example for they have not the means they may walk to be sure but it is exactly the inducement to walk that they require if every one of these men knew that by taking the trouble to walk two or three miles he would be enabled to share in a good game of cricket or some athletic sport i very much question whether any of them would remain at home but you hold out no inducement you offer no relief from listlessness you provide nothing to amuse his mind you afford no means of exercising his body unwashed and unshaven he saunters moodily around weary and dejected in lieu of the wholesome stimulus he might derive from nature you drive him to the pernicious excitement to be gained from art he flies to the gin-shop as his only resource and when reduced to a worse level than the lowest brute in the scale of creation he lies wallowing in the kennel you saintly lawgivers lift up your hands to heaven and exclaim for a law which shall convert the day intended for rest and cheerfulness into one of universal gloom bigotry and persecution End of chapter 1
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. Sunday Under Three Heads, Chapter 2, by Charles Dickens. Chapter 2. A Sabbath as Bills Would Make It. The provisions of the bill, introduced into the House of Commons by Sir Andrew Agnew, and thrown out by that House on the motion for the second reading, on the 18th of May in the present year, by a majority of thirty-two, may very fairly be taken as a test of the length to which the fanatics, of which the Honourable Baronet is the distinguished leader, are prepared to go. No test can be fairer, because while on the one hand this measure may be supposed to exhibit all the improvements which mature reflection and long deliberation may have suggested, so on the other it may very reasonably be inferred that if it be quite as severe in its provisions, and to the full as partial in its operation, as those which have preceded it and experienced a similar fate, the disease under which the Honourable Baronet and his friends labour is perfectly hopeless and beyond the reach of cure. The proposed enactments of the bill are briefly these. All work is prohibited on the Lord's Day, under heavy penalties, increasing with every repetition of the offence. There are penalties for keeping shops open, penalties for drunkenness, penalties for keeping open houses of entertainment, penalties for being present at any public meeting or assembly, penalties for letting carriages, and penalties for hiring them, penalties for travelling in steamboats, and penalties for taking passengers, penalties on vessels commencing their voyage on Sunday, penalties on the owners of cattle who suffer them to be driven on the Lord's Day, penalties on constables who refuse to act, and penalties for resisting them when they do. In addition to these trifles, the constables are invested with arbitrary, vexatious, and most extensive powers, and all this in a bill which sets out with a hypocritical and canting declaration that nothing is more acceptable to God than the true and sincere worship of Him according to His holy will, and that it is the burden and the bounden duty of Parliament to promote the observance of the Lord's day by protecting every class of society against being required to sacrifice their comfort, health, religious privileges, and conscience for the convenience, enjoyment, or supposed advantage of any other class on the Lord's day. The idea of making a man truly moral through the ministry of constables, and sincerely religious under the influence of penalties, is worthy of the mind which could form such a mass of monstrous absurdity as this bill is composed of. The House of Commons threw the measure out certainly, and by so doing retrieved the disgrace, so far as it could be retrieved, of placing among the printed papers of Parliament such an egregious specimen of legislative folly. But there was a degree of delicacy and forbearance about the debate that took place which I cannot help thinking as unnecessary and uncalled for, as it is unusual in parliamentary discussions. If it had been the first time of Sir Andrew Agnes's attempt to palm such a measure upon the country, we might well understand, 
and duly appreciate, the delicate and compassionate feeling due to the supposed weakness and imbecility of the man, which prevented his proposition being exposed in its true colors, and induced this honorable member to bear testimony to his excellent motives, and that noble lord to regret that he could not, although he had tried to do so, adopt any portion of the bill. But when these attempts have been repeated, again and again, when Sir Andrew Agnew has renewed them session after session, and when it has become palpably evident to the whole house that his impudence of proof in every trial kens no polite and heeds no plain denial, it really becomes high time to speak of him and his legislation as they appear to deserve, without that gloss of politeness, which is all very well in an ordinary case, but rather out of place when the liberties and comforts of a whole people are at stake. In the first place, it is by no means the worst characteristic of this bill that it is a bill of blunders. It is, from beginning to end, a piece of deliberate cruelty and crafty injustice. If the rich composed the whole population of this country, not a single comfort of one single man would be affected by it. It is directed exclusively, and without the exception of a solitary instance, against the amusements and recreations of the poor. This was the bait held out by the Honorable Baronet to a body of men who cannot be supposed to have any very strong sympathies in common with the poor, because they cannot understand their sufferings or their struggles. This is the bait, which will in time prevail, unless public attention is awakened, and public feeling exerted, to prevent it. Take the very first clause, the provision that no man shall be allowed to work on Sunday, that no person upon the Lord's day shall do, or hire, or employ any person to do any manner of labor, or any work of his or her ordinary calling. What class of persons does this affect? The rich man? No. Menial servants, both male and female, are specially exempted from the operation of the bill. Menial servants are among the poor people. The bill has no regard for them. The baronet's dinner must be cooked on Sunday, the bishop's horses must be groomed, and the peer's carriage must be driven. So the menial servants are put utterly beyond the pale of grace, unless, indeed, they are to go to heaven through the sanctity of their masters, and possibly they might think even that rather an uncertain passport. There is a penalty for keeping open houses of entertainment. Now, suppose the bill had passed, and that half a dozen adventurous licensed victuallers, relying upon the excitement of public feeling on the subject, and the consequent difficulty of conviction, this is by no means an improbable supposition, had determined to keep their houses and gardens open through the whole Sunday afternoon, in defiance of the law. Every act of hiring or working, every act of buying or selling, or delivering, or causing anything to be bought or sold, is specifically made a separate offense. Mark the effect. A party a man and his wife and children, enter a tea-garden, 
and the informer stations himself in the next box, from which he can see and hear everything that passes. Waiter, says the father. Yes, sir. A pint of the best ale. Yes, sir. Away runs the waiter to the bar, and gets the ale from the landlord. Out comes the informer's notebook. Penalty on the father for hiring, on the waiter for delivering, and on the landlord for selling, on the Lord's Day. But it does not stop here. The waiter delivers the ale, and darts off, little suspecting the penalties in store for him. Hello, cries the father. Waiter. Yes, sir. Just get this little boy a biscuit, will you? Yes, sir. Off runs the waiter again, and down goes another case of hiring, another case of delivering, and another case of selling. And so it would go on ad infinitum, the sum and substance of the matter being that every time a man or woman cried, Waiter, on Sunday, he or she would be fined not less than forty shillings, nor more than a hundred. And every time a waiter replied, Yes, sir, he and his master would be fined in the same amount, with the addition of a new sort of window-duty on the landlord, to wit, a tax of twenty shillings an hour for every hour beyond the first one, during which he should have his shutters down on the Sabbath. With one exception, there are perhaps no clauses in the whole bill so strongly illustrative of its partial operation, and the intention of its framer, as those which relate to travelling on Sunday. Penalties of ten, twenty, and thirty pounds are mercilessly imposed upon coach proprietors who shall run their coaches on the Sabbath. One, two, and ten pounds upon those who hire, or let to hire, horses and carriages upon the Lord's Day, but not one syllable about those who have no necessity to hire, because they have carriages and horses of their own, not one word of penalty on liveried coachmen and footmen, the whole of the saintly venom is directed against the hired cabriolet, the humble fly, or the rumbling hackney-coach, which enables a man of the poorer classes to escape for a few hours from the smoke and dirt, in the midst of which he has been confined throughout the week, while the escutcheoned carriage and the dashing cab may whirl their wealthy owners to Sunday feasts and private oratorios, setting constables, informers, and penalties at defiance. Again, in the description of the places of public resort, which it is rendered criminal to attend on Sunday, there are no words comprising a very fashionable promenade. Public discussions, public debates, public lectures and speeches are cautiously guarded against, for it is by their means that the people become enlightened enough to deride the last efforts of bigotry and superstition. There is a stringent provision for punishing the poor man who spends an hour in a newsroom, but there is nothing to prevent the rich one from lounging away the day at the zoological gardens. There is, in four words, a mock proviso which affects to forbid travelling with any animal on the Lord's Day. This, however, is revoked, as it relates to the rich man, by a subsequent provision. We have then a penalty of not less than fifty, nor more than one hundred pounds, upon any person participating in the control, or having the command of any vessel which shall commence her voyage on the Lord's Day, should the wind prove favourable. The next time this bill is brought forward, which will no doubt be at an early period of the next session of Parliament, perhaps it would be better to amend this clause by declaring, 
that from and after the passing of the act it shall be deemed unlawful for the wind to blow at all upon the sabbath it would remove a great deal of temptation from the owners and captains of vessels the reader is now in possession of the principal enacting clauses of sir andrew agnew's bill with the exception of one for preventing the killing or taking of fish or other wild animals and the ordinary provisions which are inserted for form's sake in all acts of parliament i now beg his attention to the clauses of exemption they are two in number the first exempts menial servants from any rest and all poor men from any recreation outlaws a milkman after nine o'clock in the morning and makes eating-houses lawful for only two hours in the afternoon permits a medical man to use his carriage on sunday and declares that a clergyman may either use his own or hire one the second is artful cunning and designing shielding the rich man from the possibility of being entrapped and affecting at the same time to have a tender and scrupulous regard for the interests of the whole community it declares that nothing in this act contained shall extend to works of piety charity or necessity what is meant by the word necessity in this clause simply this that the rich man shall be at liberty to make use of all the splendid luxuries he has collected around him on any day in the week because habit and custom have rendered them necessary to his easy existence but that the poor man who saves his money to provide some little pleasure for himself and his family at lengthened intervals shall not be permitted to enjoy it it is not necessary to him heaven knows he very often goes long enough without it this is the plain english of the clause the carriage and a pair of horses the coachman the footman the helper and the groom are necessary on sundays as on other days to the bishop and the nobleman but the hackney coach the hired gig or the taxed cart cannot possibly be necessary to the working man on sunday for he has it not at other times the sumptuous dinner and the rich wines are necessaries to a great man in his own mansion but the pint of beer and the plate of meat degrade the national character in an eating-house such is the bill for promoting the true and sincere worship of god according to his holy will and for protecting every class of society against being required to sacrifice their health and comfort on the sabbath instances in which its operation would be as unjust as it would be absurd might be multiplied to an endless amount but it is sufficient to place its leading provisions before the reader in doing so i have purposely abstained from drawing upon the imagination for possible cases the provisions to which i have referred stand in so many words upon the bill as printed by order of the house of commons and they can neither be disowned nor explained away let us suppose such a bill as this to have actually passed both branches of the legislature to have received the royal assent and to have come into operation imagine its effect in a great city like london sunday comes and brings with it a day of general gloom and austerity the man who has been toiling hard all the week has been looking towards the sabbath not as to a day of rest from labor and healthy recreation 
but as one of grievous tyranny and grinding oppression. The day which his Maker intended as a blessing, man has converted into a curse. Instead of being hailed by him as his period of relaxation, he finds it remarkable only as depriving him of every comfort and enjoyment. He has many children about him, all sent into the world at an early age to struggle for a livelihood. One is kept in a warehouse all day, with an interval of rest too short to enable him to reach home. Another walks four or five miles to his employment at the docks. A third earns a few shillings weekly, as an errand boy or an office messenger, and the employment of the man himself detains him at some distance from his house from morning till night. Sunday is the only day on which they could all meet together and enjoy a homely meal in social comfort, and now they sit down to a cold and cheerless dinner, the pious guardians of the man's salvation having, in their regard for the welfare of his precious soul, shut up the baker's shops. The fire blazes high in the kitchen chimney of these well-fed hypocrites, and the rich steams of the savoury dinner scent the air. What care they to be told that this class of men have neither a place to cook in, nor means to bear the expense, if they had? Look into your churches, diminished congregations, and scanty attendance. People have grown sullen and obstinate and are becoming disgruntled with the faith which condemns them to such a day as this, once in every seven. And as you cannot make people religious by act of Parliament, or force them to church by constables, they display their feeling by staying away. Turn into the streets, and mark the rigid gloom that reigns over everything around. The roads are empty, the fields are deserted, the houses of entertainment are closed, Groups of filthy and discontented men are idling about the street corners or sleeping in the sun, but there are no decently dressed people of the poorer classes passing to and fro. Where should they walk to? It would take them an hour, at least, to get into the fields, and when they reached them they could procure neither bite nor sup without the informer and the penalty. Now and then a carriage rolls smoothly on, or well-mounted horsemen, followed by a liveried attendant, canters by. But with these exceptions, all is as melancholy and quiet as if a pestilence had fallen on the city. Bend your steps through the narrow and thickly inhabited streets. Observe the sallow faces of the men and women who are lounging at the doors, or lolling from the windows. Regard well the closeness of these crowded rooms, and the noisome exhalations that rise from the drains and kennels, and then laud the triumph of religion and morality, which condemns people to drag their lives out in such stews as these, and makes it criminal for them to eat or drink in the fresh air or under the clear sky. Here and there, from some half-opened window, the loud shout of drunken revelry strikes upon the ear, and the noise of oaths and quarrelling. The effect of the close and heated atmosphere is heard on all sides, See how the men all rush to join the crowd that are making their way down the street, and how loud the execrations of the mob become as they draw near. They have assembled round a little knot of constables, who have seized the stock in trade, heinously exposed on Sunday, of some miserable walking-stick seller, who follows clamouring for his property. The dispute grows warmer and fiercer, 
until at last some of the more furious among the crowd rush forward to restore the goods to their owner. A general conflict takes place. The sticks of the constables are exercised in all directions. A fresh assistance is procured, and half a dozen of the assailants are conveyed to the station-house, struggling, bleeding, and cursing. The case is taken to the police office on the following morning, and after a frightful amount of perjury on both sides, the men are sent to prison for resisting the officers, their families to the workhouse to keep them from starving, and there they both remain for a month afterwards, glorious trophies of the sanctioned enforcement of the Christian Sabbath. And to such scenes as these, the profligacy, idleness, drunkenness, and vice that will be committed to an extent which no man can foresee, on Monday, as an atonement for the restraint on the preceding day, and you have a very faint and imperfect picture of the religious effects of this Sunday legislation, supposing it could ever be forced upon the people. But let those who advocate the cause of fanaticism reflect well upon the probable issue of their endeavors. They may, by perseverance, succeed with Parliament. Let them ponder on the probability of succeeding with the people. You may deny the concession of a political question for a time, and a nation will bear it patiently. Strike home to the comforts of every man's fireside, tamper with every man's freedom and liberty, and one month, one week, may rouse a feeling abroad, which a king would gladly yield his crown to quell, and a peer would resign his coronet to allay. It is the custom to affect a deference for the motives of those who advocate these measures, and a respect for the feelings by which they are actuated they do not deserve it. If they legislate in ignorance, they are criminal and dishonest. If they do so with their eyes open, they commit willful injustice. In either case, they bring religion into contempt. But they do not legislate in ignorance. Public prints and public men have pointed out to them again and again the consequences of their proceedings, if they persist in thrusting themselves forward, let these consequences rest upon their own heads, and let them be content to stand upon their own merits. It may be asked, what motives can actuate a man who has so little regard for the comfort of his fellow-beings, so little respect for their wants and necessities, and so distorted a notion of the beneficence of his Creator? I reply, an envious, heartless, ill-conditioned dislike to seeing those whom fortune has placed below him cheerful and happy, an intolerant confidence in his own high worthiness before God, and a lofty impression of the demerits of others. Pride, selfish pride, as inconsistent with the spirit of Christianity itself, as opposed to the example of its founder upon earth. To these might be added another class of men, the stern and gloomy enthusiasts, who would make earth a hell and religion a torment. Men who, having wasted the earlier part of their lives in dissipation and depravity, find themselves when scarcely past its meridian, steeped to the neck in vice, and shunned like a loathsome disease. Abandoned by the world, having nothing to fall back upon, nothing to remember but time misspent, and energies misdirected, 
they turn their eyes and not their thoughts to heaven and delude themselves into the impious belief that in denouncing the lightness of heart of which they cannot partake and the rational pleasures from which they never derived enjoyment they are more than remedying the sins of their old career and like the founders of monasteries and builders of churches in ruder days establishing a good set claim upon their maker end of sunday under three heads chapter two sunday under three heads chapter three this is the librivox recording all librivox recordings are on the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by siddharth charles dickens two hundredth anniversary collection volume five sunday under three heads chapter three by charles dickens chapter three as it might be made the supporters of sabbath bills and more especially the extreme class of dissenters lay great stress upon the declarations occasionally made by criminals from the condemned cell or the scaffold that too sabbath breaking they attribute their first deviation from the path of rectitude and they point to these statements as an incontestable proof of the evil consequences which await a departure from that strict and rigid observance of the sabbath which they uphold i cannot help thinking that in this as in almost every other respect connected with the subject there is a considerable degree of cant and a very great deal of wilful blindness if a man be viciously disposed and with very few exceptions not a man dies by the executioner's hands who has not been in one way or other a most abandoned and profligate character for many years if a man be viciously disposed there is no doubt that he will turn his sunday to bad account that he will take advantage of it to dissipate with other bad characters as vile as himself and that in this way he may trace his first yielding to temptation possibly his first commission of crime to an infringement of the sabbath but this would be an argument against any holiday at all if his holiday had been wednesday instead of sunday and he had devoted it to the same improper uses it would have been productive of the same results it is too much to judge of the character of a whole people by the confessions of the very worst members of society it is not fair to cry down things which are harmless in themselves because evil disposed men may turn them to bad account whoever thought of depreciating the teaching of poor people to write because some porter in a warehouse had committed forgery or into what man's head did it ever enter to prevent the crowding of churches because it afforded a temptation for the picking of pockets when the book of sports for allowing the peasantry of england to divert themselves with certain games in the open air on sundays after evening service was published by charles i it is needless to say the english people were comparatively rude and uncivilized and yet 
it is extraordinary to how few excuses it gave rise even in that day when men's minds were not enlightened or their passions moderated by the influence of education and refinement that some excesses were committed through its means in the remote parts of the country and that it was discontinued in those places in consequence cannot be denied but generally speaking there is no proof whatever on record of its having any tendency to increase crime or to lower the character of the people the puritans of that time were as much opposed to harmless recreations and healthful amusements as those of the present day and it is amusing to observe that each in their generation advanced precisely the same description of arguments in the british museum there is a curious pamphlet got up by the agnus of charles time entitled a divine tragedy lately acted or a collection of sundry memorable examples of god's judgments upon sabbath breakers and other like libertines in their unlawful sports happening within the realm of england in the compass only of two years last past since the book of sports was published worthy to be known and considered of all men especially such who are guilty of the sin or arch patrons thereof this amusing document contains some fifty or sixty veritable accounts of balls of fire that fell into the churchyards and upset the sporters and sporters that quarrelled and upset one another and so forth and among them is one anecdote containing an example of a rather different kind which i cannot resist the temptation of quoting as strongly illustrative of the fact that this blinking of the question has not even the recommendation of novelty a woman about northampton the same day that she heard the book for sports read went immediately and having three pence in her purse hired a fellow to go to the next town to fetch a minstrel who coming she with others fell a dancing which continued within night at which time she was caught with child which at the birth she mothering was detected and apprehended and being converted before the justice she confessed it and with her told the occasion of it saying it was her falling to sport on the sabbath upon the reading of the book so as for this terrible sinful act her presumptuous profaning of the sabbath which brought her adultery and that murder she was according to the law of both god and man put to death much sin and misery followed upon sabbath breaking it's needless to say that if the young lady near northampton had fallen to sport of such dangerous description on any other day but sunday the first result would have probably been the same it never having been distinctly shown that sunday is more favorable to the propagation of the human race than any other day in the week the second result murder of the child does not speak very highly of the amiability of her natural disposition and the whole story supposing it to have had any foundation at all is about as much chargeable upon the book of sports as upon the book of kings such sports have taken place in dissenting chapels before now but religion has never been blamed in consequence 
nor has it been proposed to shut up the chapels on that account. The question then very fairly arises, whether we have any reason to suppose that allowing games in the open air on Sundays, or even providing the means of amusement for the humbler classes of society on that day, would be hurtful and injurious to the character and morals of the people. I was travelling in the west of England a summer or two back, and was induced by the beauty of the scenery and the seclusion of the spot to remain for the night in a small village, distant about seventy miles from London. The next morning was Sunday, and I walked out towards the church. Groups of people, the whole population of the little hamlet apparently, were hastening in the same direction. Cheerful and good-humoured congratulations were heard on all sides as neighbours overtook each other and walked on in company. Occasionally I passed an aged couple whose married daughter and her husband were loitering by the side of the old people, accommodating their rate of walking to their feeble pace, while a little knot of children hurried on before, stout young labourers in clean round frocks and buxom girls with healthy laughing faces were plentifully sprinkled about in couples, and the whole scene was one of quiet and tranquil contentment, irresistibly captivating. The morning was bright and pleasant, the hedges were green and blooming, and a thousand delicious scents were wafted on the air from the wild flowers which blossomed on the either side of the footpath. The little church was one of those venerable simple buildings which about in English countries, half overgrown with moss and ivy, and standing in the centre of a little plot of ground which, but for the green moulds with which it was studded, might have passed for a lovely meadow. I fancied that the old clanking bell which was now summoning the congregation together would seem less terrible when it rung out the knell of a departed soul, than I had ever deemed possible before, that the sound would tell only of a welcome to calmness and rest amidst the most peaceful and tranquil scene in nature. I followed into the church, a low-roofed building with small arched windows, through which the sun's rays streamed upon a plain tablet on the opposite wall, which had once recorded names now as undistinguishable on its worn surface as were the bones beneath from the dust into which they had dissolved. The impressive service of the Church of England was spoken, not merely read, by a grey-headed minister, and the responses delivered by his auditors, with an air of sincere devotion as far removed from affection or display as from coldness or indifference. The palms were accompanied by a few instrumental performers who were stationed in a small gallery extending across the church at the lower end, over the door, and the voices were led by the clerk, who, it was evident, derived into slight pride and gratification from this portion of the service. The discourse was plain, unpretending, and well adapted to the comprehension of the hearers. At the conclusion of the service, the villagers waited in the churchyard to salute the clergyman as he passed, and two or three I observed stepped aside as of communicating some little difficulty, 
and asking his advice. This, to guess from homely vows and other drastic expressions of gratitude, the old gentleman readily conceded. He seemed intimately acquainted with the circumstances of all his parishioners, for I heard him inquire after one man's youngest child and another man's wife, and so forth, that he was fond of his joke. I discovered from overhearing him ask a stout, fresh-coloured young fellow with a very pretty, bashful-looking girl on his arm. When those bands were to be put up, an inquiry which made the young fellow more fresh-coloured and the girl more bashful, and which, strange to say, caused a great many other girls who were standing round to colour up also, and look anywhere but in their faces of their male companions. As I approached this spot in the evening, about half an hour before sunset, I was surprised to hear the hum of voices and occasionally a shout of merriment from the meadow beyond the churchyard, which I found, when I reached the stile, to be occasioned by a very animated game of cricket, in which the boys and young men of the place were engaged, while the females and the old people were scattered about, some seated on the grass watching the progress of the game, and others swantering about in groups of two or three, gathering little nosegays of wild roses and hedge flowers. I could not but take notice of one old man in particular, with bright-eyed granddaughter by his side, who was giving a sunburnt young fellow some instructions in the game, which he received with an air of profound deference, but with an occasional glance at the girl, which induced me to think that his attention was rather distracted from the old gentleman's narration of the fruits of his experience. When it was in his turn at the wicket too, there was a glance towards the pair every now and then, which the old grandfather very complacently considered as an appeal to his judgment of a particular hit, but which a certain blush in the girl's face and a downcast look of the bright eye led me to believe was intended for somebody else than the old man, and understood by somebody else too, or I am much mistaken. I was in the very height of pleasure which the contemplation of this scene afforded me, when I saw the old clergyman making his way towards us, I trembled for an angry interruption to the sport, and was almost on the point of crying out, to warn the cricketers of his approach. He was so close upon me, however, that I could do nothing but remain still, and anticipate the reproof that was preparing. What was my agreeable surprise to see the old gentleman standing at the stile, with his hands in his pocket, surveying the whole scene with evident satisfaction, and how dull I must have been not to have known till my friend the grandfather, who, by the by, said he had been a wonderful cricketer in his time, told me that it was the clergyman himself who had established the whole thing that it was his field they played in, and that it was he who had purchased stumps, bats, ball, and all. It is such scenes as this, I would see near London on a Sunday evening, it is such men as this who would do more in one year to make people properly religious, cheerful, and contented than all the legislation of a century could ever accomplish. It will be said, it has been very often that it would be matter of perfect 
impossibility to make amusements and exercises succeed in large towns which may be very well adapted to a country population here again we are called upon to yield to bare assertions on matters of belief and opinion as if they were established and undoubted facts that there is a wide difference between the two cases no one will be prepared to dispute that the difference is such as to prevent the application of the same principle to wealth no reasonable man i think will be disposed to maintain the great majority of the people who make holiday on sunday now are industrious orderly and well-behaved persons it is not unreasonable to suppose that they would be no more inclined to an abuse of pleasure provided for them than they are to an abuse of the pleasures they provide for themselves and if any people for want of something better to do resort to criminal practices on the sabbath as at present observed no better remedy for the evil can be imagined than giving them the opportunity of doing something which will amuse them and hurt nobody else the propriety of opening the british museum to respectable people on sunday has lately been the subject of some discussion i think it would puzzle the most austere of the sunday legislators to assign any valid reason for opposing so sensible a proposition the museum contains rich specimens from all the vast museums and repositories of nature and rare and curious fragments of the mighty works of art in bygone ages all calculated to awaken contemplations and inquiry and to tend to the enlightenment and improvement of the people but attendance would be necessary and a few men would be employed upon the sabbath they certainly would but how many what if the british museum and the national gallery and the gallery of practical science and every other exhibition in london from which knowledge is to be derived and information gained were to be thrown open on a sunday afternoon not fifty people would be required to preside over the whole and it would take triple the number to enforce a sabbath bill in any three populous parishes i should like to see some large field or open piece of ground in every outskirt of london exhibiting each sunday evening on a larger scale the scene of a little country meadow i should like to see the time arrive when a man's attendance to his religious duties might be left to that religious feeling which most men possess in a greater or less degree but which was never forced into the breast of any man by menace or restraint i should like to see the time when sunday might be looked forward to as a recognized day of relaxation and enjoyment and when every man might feel what few men do now that religion is not incompatible with rational pleasure and needful recreation how different a picture would the streets and public places then present the museums and the repositories of scientific and useful inventions would be crowded with ingenious mechanics and industrious artisans all anxious for information and all unable to procure it at any other time the spacious saloons would be swarming with practical men humble in appearance but destined perhaps to become the greatest inventors and philosophers of the age the laborers 
who now lounge away the day in idleness and intoxication, would be seen hurrying along with cheerful faces in clean attire, not to the close and smoky atmosphere of the public house, but to the fresh and airy fields. Fancy the pleasant scene. Throngs of people pouring out from the lanes and alleys of the metropolis to various places of common resort and some short distance from the town to join in the refreshing sports and exercises of the day. The children gambolling in crowds upon the grass, the mothers looking on and enjoying themselves their little game they seem to only direct. Other parties strolling along some pleasant walks or reposing in the shade of the stately trees, others of mainly voices and loud shout of mirth, others again intent upon their different amusements. Nothing should be heard on all sides but the sharp stroke of the bat as it sent the ball skimming along the ground, the clear ring of the quoit as it struck upon the iron pick, the noisy murmur of many voices and the loud shout of mirth and delight which would awaken the echoes far and wide till the fields rung with it. The day would pass away in a series of enjoyments which would awaken no painful reflections when night arrived, for they would be calculated to bring with them only health and contentment. The young would lose that dread of religion which the sore austerity of its professors too often inculcates in youthful blossoms and the old would find less difficulty in persuading them to respect its observances the drunken and dissipated deprived of any excuse for their misconduct would no longer excite pity but disgust above all the more ignorant and humble class of men who now partake of many of the bitters of life and taste but few of its sweetness would naturally feel attachment and respect for that code of morality which regarding the many hardships of their station strove to alleviate its triggers and endeavoured to soften its asperity this is what sunday might be made and what it might be made without impiety or profanation the wise and beneficent creator who places men upon earth requires that they shall perform the duties of that station of life to which they are called and he can never intend that the more a man strives to discharge those duties, the more he shall be debarred from happiness and enjoyment. Let those who have six days in a week for all the world's pleasures appropriate the seventh to fasting and gloom, either for their own sins or for those of other people, if they like to bewail them. But let those who employ their six days in a worthier manner devote their seventh to a different purpose, let divines set the example of true morality, preach it to their flocks in the morning and dismiss them to enjoy true rest in the afternoon, and let them select for their text. And let Sunday legislatures take for their motto the words which fell upon the lips of that master whose percepts they misconstrue and whose lessons they pervert. The Sabbath was made for man and not man to serve the Sabbath. End of Sunday Under Three Heads This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Thousand and One Humbugs, Part One. From Household Words, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5 The Thousand and One Humbugs, Part 1 From Household Words, Volume 11, by Charles Dickens Everybody is acquainted with that enchanting collection of stories, The Thousand and One Nights, better known in England as the Arabian Nights Entertainments. Most people know that these wonderful fancies are unquestionably of genuine Eastern origin, and are to be found in Arabic manuscripts now existing in the Vatican, in Paris, in London, and in Oxford, the last-named city being particularly distinguished in this connection as possessing in the library of Christchurch a manuscript of the never-to-be-forgotten Voyages of Sinbad the Sailor. The civilized world is indebted to France for a vast amount of its possessions, and among the rest for the first opening to Europe of this gorgeous storehouse of eastern riches. So well did Monsieur Galland, the original translator, perform his task, that when Mr. Wortley Montague brought home the manuscript now in the Bodleian Library, there was found, poetical quotations excepted, to be very little and that of a very inferior kind to add to what Monsieur Galland had already made perfectly familiar to France and England. Thus much as to the thousand and one nights we recall, by way of introduction to the discovery we are about to announce. There has lately fallen into our hands a manuscript in the Arabic character, with which we are perfectly acquainted, containing a variety of stories extremely similar in structure and incident to the Thousand and One Nights, but presenting the strange feature that although they are evidently of ancient origin, they have a curious accidental bearing on the present time. Allowing for the difference of manners and customs, it would often seem were it not for the manifest impossibility of such prophetic knowledge in any mere man or men, that they were written expressly with an eye to events of the current age. We have referred the manuscript, which may be seen at our office on the first day of April in every year at precisely four o'clock in the morning, to the profoundest Oriental scholars of England and France, who are no less sensible than we are ourselves of this remarkable coincidence, and are equally at a loss to account for it. They are agreed, we may observe, on the propriety of our rendering the title in the words, The Thousand and One Humbugs, for although the Eastern storytellers do not appear to have possessed any word or combination of parts of words precisely answering to the modern English humbug, which indeed they expressed by the figurative phrase, a camel made of sand, there is no doubt that they were conversant with so common a thing, 
and further that the thing was expressly meant to be designated in the general title of the arabic manuscript now before us dispensing with further explanation we at once commence the specimens we shall occasionally present of this literary curiosity introductory chapter among the ancient kings of persia who extended their glorious conquests into the indies and far beyond the famous river ganges even to the limits of china taxtatorus or fleeced bull was incomparably the most renowned he was so rich that he scorned to undertake the humblest enterprise without inaugurating it by ordering his treasurers to throw several millions of pieces of gold into the dirt for the same reason he attached no value to his foreign possessions but merely used them as playthings for a little while and then always threw them away or lost them this wise sultan though blessed with innumerable sources of happiness was afflicted with one fruitful cause of discontent he had been married many scores of times yet had never found a wife to suit him although he had raised to the dignity of hauser commons or peerless chatterer a great variety of beautiful creatures not only of the lineage of the high nobles of his court but also selected from other classes of his subjects the result had uniformly been the same they proved unfaithful brazen talkative idle extravagant inefficient and boastful thus it naturally happened that the hauser commons very rarely died a natural death but was generally cut short in some violent manner at length the young and lovely reform that is to say light of reason the youngest and fairest of all the sultan's wives and to whom he had looked with hope to recompense him for his many disappointments made as bad a hauser commons as any of the rest the unfortunate taxtorus took this so much to heart that he fell into a profound melancholy secluded himself from observation and for some time was so seldom seen or heard of that many of his great officers of state supposed him to be dead shall i never said the unhappy monarch beating his breast in his retirement in the pavilion of failure and giving vent to his tears find a house of commands who will be true to me he then quoted from the poet certain verses importing every house of commands has deceived me every house of commands is a humbug i must slay the present house of commands as i have slain so many others i am brought to shame and mortification i am despised by the world after which his grief so overpowered him that he fainted away it happened that on recovering his senses he heard the voice of the last maid hauser commands in the divan adjoining applying his ear to the lattice and finding that that shameless princess was vaunting her loyalty and virtue and denying a host of facts which she always did all night the sultan drew his scimitar in a fury resolved to put an end to her existence but the grand vizier parmastoon or twirling weathercock who was at that moment watching his incensed master from behind the silken curtain of the pavilion of failure 
hurried forward and prostrated himself trembling on the ground this vizier had newly succeeded to aberdeen or the adult who had for his misdeeds been strangled with a garter the breath of the slave said the vizier is in the hands of his lord but the lion will sometimes deign to listen to the croaking of the frog i swear to thee vizier replied the sultan that i have borne too much already and will bear no more thou and the house of commands are in one story and by the might of allah and the beard of the prophet i have a mind to destroy ye both when the vizier heard the sultan thus menace him with destruction his heart drooped within him but being a brisk and ready man though stricken in years he quoted certain lines from the poet implying that the thunder cloud often spares the leaf or there would be no fruit and touched the ground with his forehead in token of submission what wouldst thou say demanded the generous prince i give thee leave to speak thou art not unaccustomed to public speaking speak glibly sire returned the vizier but for the dread of the might of my lord i would reply in the words addressed by the ignorant man to the genie and what were those words demanded the sultan repeat them palmerston replied to hear is to obey the story of the ignorant man and the genie sire on the barbarous confines of the kingdom of the tartars there dwelt an ignorant man who was obliged to make a journey through the great desert of desolation which as your majesty knows is sometimes a journey of upwards of threescore and ten years he bade adieu to his mother very early in the morning and departed without a guide ragged barefoot and alone he found the way surprisingly steep and rugged and beset by vile serpents and strange unintelligible creatures of horrible shapes it was likewise full of black bogs and pits into which he not only fell himself but often had the misfortune to drag other travellers whom he encountered and who got out no more but were miserably stifled sire on the fourteenth day of the journey of the ignorant man of the kingdom of the tartars he sat down to rest by the side of a foul well being unable to find a better and there cracked for a repast as best he could a very hard nut which was all he had about him he threw the shell anywhere as he stripped it off and having made an end of his meal arose to wander on again when suddenly the air was darkened he heard a frightful cry and saw a monstrous genie of gigantic stature who brandished a mighty scimitar in a hand of iron advancing towards him rise ignorant beast said the monster as he drew nigh that i law may kill thee for having affronted my ward alas my lord returned the ignorant man how can i have affronted thy ward whom i never saw he is invisible to thee returned the genie because thou art a benighted barbarian but if thou hadst ever learnt any good thing thou wouldst have seen him plainly and wouldst have respected him lord of my life pleaded the traveller how could i learn where there were none to teach me 
and how affront thy ward whom i have not the power to see i tell thee returned the genie that with thy pernicious refuse thou hast struck my ward prince Osaiti, in the apple of his eye and because thou hast done this i will be thy ruin i maim and kill the like of thee by thousands every year for no other crime and shall i spare thee kneel and receive the blow your majesty will believe continued the grand vizier that the ignorant man of the kingdom of the tartars gave himself up for lost when he heard those cruel words without so much as repeating the formula of our faith there is but one allah from him we come to him we must return and who shall resist his will for he was too ignorant even to have heard it he bent his neck to receive the fatal stroke his head rolled off as he finished saying these words dread law if thou hadst taken half the pains to teach me to discern thy ward that thou hast taken to avenge him thou hadst been spared the great account to which i summon thee taxed taurus the sultan of persia listened attentively to this recital on the part of his grand vizier and when it was concluded said with a threatening brow expound to me o nephew of a dog the points of resemblance between the tiger and the nightingale and what thy ignorant man of the accursed kingdom of the tartars has to do with the false hauser commands and the glib vizier parmastoon while speaking he again raised his glittering scimitar let not my master sully the sole of his foot by crushing an insect returned the vizier kissing the ground seven times i meant but to offer up a petition from the dust that the light of the eyes of the faithful would before striking deign to hear my daughter what of thy daughter said the sultan impatiently and why should i hear thy daughter any more than the daughter of the dirtiest of dustmen sire returned the vizier i am dirtier than the dirtiest of the dustmen in your majesty's sight but my daughter is deeply read in the history of every house of commands who has aspired to your majesty's favour during many years and if your majesty would condescend to hear some of the legends she has to relate they might what dost thou call thy daughter demanded the sultan interrupting hansard dead replied the vizier go said the sultan bring her hither i spare thy life until thou shalt return the grand vizier parmastoon on receiving the injunction to bring his daughter hansardade into the royal presence lost no time in repairing to his palace which was but across the sultan's gardens and going straight to the women's apartments found hansardade surrounded by a number of old women who were all consulting her at once in truth this affable princess was perpetually being referred to by all manner of old women hastily causing her attendants when she heard her father's errand to attire her in her finest dress which outsparkled the sun and bidding her young sister brother toon or chamber candlestick to make similar preparations and accompany her the daughter of the grand vizier soon covered herself with a rich veil and said to her father 
with a low obeisance sir i am ready to attend you to my lord the commander of the faithful the grand vizier and his daughter hansardaid and her young sister brother toon preceded by mr speaker a black mute the chief of the officers of the royal seraglio went across the sultan's gardens by the way the vizier had come and arriving at the sultan's palace found that monarch on his throne surrounded by his principal councillors and officers of state they all four prostrated themselves at a distance and waited the sultan's pleasure that gracious prince was troubled in his mind when he commanded the fair hansardade who on the whole was very fair indeed to approach for he had sworn an oath in the vizier's absence from which he could not depart nevertheless as it must be kept he proceeded to announce it before the assembly vizier said he thou hast brought thy daughter here as possessing a large stock of hauser commands experience in the hope of her relating something that may soften me under my accumulated wrongs know that i have solemnly sworn that if her stories fail as i believe they will to mitigate my wrath i will have her burned and her ashes cast to the winds also i will strangle thee and the present house of commands and will take a new one every day and strangle her as soon as taken until i find a good and true one parmastoon replied to hear is to obey hansardade then took a one-stringed lute and sang a lengthened song in prose its purport was i am the recorder of brilliant eloquence i am the chronicler of patriotism i am the pride of sages and the joy of nations the continued salvation of the country is owing to what i preserve and without it there would be no business done sweet are the voices of the crow and chuff and persia never 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 can have words enough at the conclusion of this delightful strain the sultan and the whole divan were so faint with rapture that they remained in a comatose state for several hours would your majesty said hansardade when all were at length recovered prefer first to hear the story of the wonderful camp or the story of the talkative barber or the story of Sierli Tapa and the forty thieves i would have thee commence replied the sultan with the story of the forty thieves hansardade began sire there was once a poor relation when brother toon interposed dear sister cried brother toon it is now past midnight it will be shortly daybreak and if you are not asleep you ought to be i pray you dear sister by all means to hold your tongue to-night and if my lord the sultan will suffer you to live another day you can talk to-morrow the sultan arose with a clouded face but went out without giving any orders for the execution end of the thousand and one humbugs part one from household words volume eleven recording by noel badrian county offaly ireland the thousand and one humbugs part two from household words volume eleven
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. The Thousand and One Humbugs, Part 2, from Household Words, Volume 11, by Charles Dickens. The Story of Scarly Tapa and the Forty Thieves Accompanied by the Grand Vizier, Palmerstoon, and the Black Mute, Mr. Speaker, the Chief of the Seraglio, Hansardade again repaired next day to the August Presence, and after making the usual prostrations before the Sultan, began thus. Sire, there was once a poor relation who lived in a town in the dominions of the Sultan of the Indies, and whose name was Scarly Tapa. He was the youngest son of a dowager, which, as your majesty knows, is a female spirit of voracious appetites, and generally with a wig and a carmine complexion, who prowls about old houses and preys upon mankind. This dowager had attained an immense age, in consequence of having been put by an evil genie on the pension list, or talisman to secure long life. But, at length, she very reluctantly died towards the close of a quarter, after making the most affecting struggle to live into the half-year. Scarly Tapa had a rich elder brother named Kashim, who had married the daughter of a prosperous merchant, and lived magnificently. Scarly Tapa, on the other hand, could barely support his wife and family by lounging about the town and going out to dinner with his utmost power of perseverance, betting on horse-races, playing at billiards, and running into debt with everybody who would trust him, the last being his principal means of obtaining an honest livelihood. One day, when Scarly Tapa had strolled for some time along the banks of a great river of liquid filth, which ornamented that agreeable country and rendered it salubrious, he found himself in the neighbourhood of the woods and forests. Lifting up his eyes, he observed in the distance a great cloud of dust. He was not surprised to see it, knowing those parts to be famous for casting prodigious quantities of dust into the eyes of the faithful. But, as it rapidly advanced towards him, he climbed into a tree, the better to observe it without being seen himself. As the cloud of dust approached, Scarly Tapa perceived it from his hiding-place to be occasioned by forty mounted robbers, each bestriding a severely goaded and heavily laden bull. The whole troop came to a halt at the foot of the tree, and all the robbers dismounted. Every robber then tethered his hack to the most convenient shrub, gave it a full meal of very bad chaff, and hung over his arm the empty sack which had contained the same. Then the captain of the robbers, advancing to a door in an antediluvian rock, which Scarly Tapa had not observed before, and on which were the enchanted letters O-F-F-I-C-E, said, Debrett's Peerage, open sesame. As soon as the captain of the robbers had uttered these words, the door, obedient to the charm, flew open, and all the robbers went in. The captain went in last, and the door shut of itself. The robbers stayed so long within the rock 
that Scarly Tapa more than once felt tempted to descend the tree and make off. Fearful, however, that they might reappear and catch him before he could escape, he remained hidden by the leaves as patiently as he could. At last the door opened, and the forty robbers came out. As the captain had gone in last, he came out first, and stood to see the whole troop pass him. When they had all done so, he said, De Brett's peerage, shut sesame. The door immediately closed again as before. Every robber then mounted his bull, adjusting before him his sack well filled with gold, silver and jewels. When the captain saw that they were all ready, he put himself at their head, and they rode off by the way they had come. Scarly Tapa remained in the tree until the receding cloud of dust occasioned by the troop of robbers with their captain at their head was no longer visible, and then came softly down and approached the door. Making use of the words that he had heard pronounced by the captain of the robbers, he said, after first piously strengthening himself with the remembrance of his deceased mother, the dowager, De Brett's peerage, open sesame. The door instantly flew wide open. Scarly Tapa, who had expected to see a dull place, was surprised to find himself in an exceedingly agreeable vista of rooms, where everything was as light as possible, and where vast quantities of the finest wheaten loaves, and the richest gold and silver fishes, and all kinds of valuable possessions were to be got for the laying hold of. Quickly loading himself with as much spoil as he could move under, he opened and closed the door, as the captain of the robbers had done, and hurried away with his treasure to his poor home. When the wife of Scarly Tapa saw her husband enter their dwelling after it was dark, and proceed to pile upon the floor a heap of wealth, she cried, Alas, husband, whom have you taken in now? Be not alarmed, wife, returned Scarly Tapa. No one suffers but the public and then told her how he, a poor relation, had made his way into office by the magic words, and had enriched himself. There being more money and more loaves and fishes than they knew what to do with at the moment, the wife of Scarly Tapa, transported with joy, ran off to her sister-in-law, the wife of Cashim Tapa, who lived hard by to borrow a measure by means of which their property could be got into some order. The wife of Kashim Tapa, looking into the measure when it was brought back, found at the bottom of it several of the crumbs of fine loaves and of the scales of gold and silver fishes, upon which, flying into an envious rage, she thus addressed her husband. Wretched Kashim, you know you are of high birth as the eldest son of a dowager, and you think you are rich, but your despised younger brother, Scarly Tapa, is infinitely richer and more powerful than you. Judge of his wealth from these tokens. At the same time she showed him the measure. Cashim, who since his marriage to the merchant's widow, has treated his brother coolly and held him at a distance, was at once fired with a burning desire to know how he had become rich. He was unable to sleep all night, and at the first streak of day, before the summons to morning prayers was heard from the minarets of the mosques, arose and went to his brother's house. 
dear scarly tapa said he pretending to be very fraternal what loaves and fishes are these that thou hast in thy possession scarly tapa perceiving from this discourse that he could no longer keep his secret communicated his discovery to his brother who lost no time in providing all things necessary for the stowage of riches and in repairing alone to the mysterious door near the woods and forests when night came and kashim tapa did not return his relatives became uneasy his absence being prolonged for several days and nights scarly tapa at length proceeded to the enchanted door in search of him opening it by the infallible means what were his emotions to find that the robbers had encountered his brother within and had quartered him upon the spot for ever commander of the faithful when scarly tapa beheld the dismal spectacle of his brother everlastingly quartered upon office for having merely uttered the magic words debrett's peerage open sesame he was greatly troubled in his mind feeling the necessity of hushing the matter up and putting the best face upon it for the family credit he at once devised a plan to attain that object there was in the house where his brother had sat himself down on his marriage with the merchant's daughter a discreet slave whose name was jobbiana though a kind of under-secretary in the treasury department she was very useful in the dirty work of the establishment and had also some knowledge of the stables and could assist the whippers in at a pinch scarly tapa going home and taking the discreet slave aside related to her how her master was quartered and how it was now their business to disguise the fact and deceive the neighbours jobbiana replied to hear is to obey accordingly before day for she always avoided daylight the discreet slave went to a certain cobbler whom she knew and found him sitting in his stall in the public street good morrow friend said she putting a bribe into his hand will you bring the tools of your trade and come to a house with me willingly but what to do replied the cobbler who was a merry fellow nothing against my patriotism and conscience i hope at which he laughed heartily not in the least returned jobbiana giving him another bribe but you must go into the house blindfold and with your hands tied you don't mind that for a job i don't mind anything for a job returned the cobbler with vivacity i like a job it's my business to job only make it worth my while and i am ready for any job you may please to name at the same time he arose briskly jobbiana then imparted to him the quartering that had taken place and that he was wanted to cobble the subject up and hide what had been done is that all if it is no more than that returned the cobbler blind my eyes and tie my hands and let us cobble away as long as you like sire the discreet slave blindfolded the cobbler and tied his hands and took him to the house where he cobbled the subject up with so much skill that she rewarded him munificently we must now return to the captain of the robbers whose name was yorwa and whose soul was filled with perplexities and anxieties 
when he visited the cave and found from the state of the wheaten loaves and the gold and silver fishes that there was yet another person who possessed the secret of the magic door your majesty must know that your yorwa captain of the robbers most of whose forefathers had been rebellious genii who never had anything whatsoever to do with solomon sauntering through the city in a highly disconsolate and languid state chanced to come before daylight upon the cobbler working in his stall good morrow honourable friend said he you job early my lord returned the cobbler i job early and late you do well observed the captain of the robbers but have you light enough the less light the better said the cobbler for my work ay returned yo yoa why so why so repeated the cobbler winking because i can cobble certain businesses best in the dark when the captain of the robbers heard him say this he quickly understood the hint he blindfolded him and tied his hands as the discreet slave had done turned his coat and led him away until he stopped at the house this is the house that was concerned in the quartering and cobbling said he the captain set a mark upon it but jobbiana coming by soon afterward and seeing what had been done set exactly the same mark upon twenty other houses in the same row so that in truth they were all precisely alike and one was marked by jobbiana exactly as the other was and there was not a pin to choose between them thus discomfited the captain of the robbers called his troop together and addressed them my noble right honourable honourable and gallant honourable and learned and simply honourable friends said he it is apparent that we the old band who for so many years have possessed the command of the magic door are in danger of being superseded in a word it is clear that there are now two bands of robbers and that we must overcome the opposition or be ourselves vanquished all the robbers applauded this sentiment therefore said the captain i will disguise myself as a trader in the patriotic line of business and will endeavour to prevail by stratagem the robbers as with one voice approved of this design the captain of the robbers accordingly disguised himself as a trader of that sort which is called at the bazaars a patriot and having again had recourse to the cobbler and having carefully observed the house arranged his plans without delay feigning to be a dealer in soft soap he concealed his men in nine-and-thirty jars of that commodity a man in every jar and loading a number of mules with his pretended merchandise appeared at the head of his caravan one evening at the house where scarly tapa was sitting on a bench in his usual place taking it as he generally did in the house very coolly my lord said the pretended trader i am a stranger here and know not where to bestow my merchandise for the night suffer me then i beseech you to warehouse it here scarlitapa rose up showed the pretended merchant where to put his goods and instructed jobbiana to prepare an entertainment for his guest also a bath for himself his hands being very far from clean 
the discreet slave in obedience to her orders proceeded to prepare the entertainment and the bath but was vexed to discover when it was late and the shops of the dealers were all shut that there was no soft soap in the house which was the more unexpected as there was generally more than enough remembering however that the pretended trader had brought a large stock with him she went to one of the jars to get a little as she drew near to it the impatient robber within supposing it to be his leader said in a low voice is it time for our party to come in jobiana instantly comprehending the danger replied not yet but presently she went in this manner to all the jars receiving the same question and giving the same answer the discreet slave returning into the kitchen with her presence of mind not at all disturbed and there prepared a lukewarm mess of soothing syrup worn-out wigs weak milk and water poppy heads empty nutshells froth and other similar ingredients when it was sufficiently mawkish she returned to the jars bearing a large kettle filled with this mixture poured some of it upon every robber and threw the whole troop into a state of insensibility or submission she then returned to the house served up the entertainment cleared away the fragments and attired herself in a rich dress to dance before her master and his disguised visitor in the course of her dances which were performed in the slowest time and during which she blew both her own and the family trumpet with extraordinary pertinacity jobiana took care always to approach nearer and still nearer to the captain of the robbers at length she seized him by the sleeve of his disguise disclosed him in his own dress to her master and related where his men were and how they had asked was it time to come in scarli tapa so far from being angry with the pretended trader fell upon his neck and addressed him in these friendly expressions since our object is the same and no great difference exists between us o oh, my brother let us form a coalition de brett's peerage will open sesame to the scarli tapas and the yahyahwehs equally and will shut out the rest of mankind let it be so there is plunder enough in the cave so that it is never restored to the original owners and never gets into other hands but ours but why should we quarrel over much the captain made a suitable reply and embraced his entertainer jobiana shedding tears of joy embraced them both shortly afterwards scarli tapa in gratitude to the wise jobiana caused her to be invested with the freedom of the city where she had been very much beloved for many years and gave her in marriage to his own son they had a large family and a powerful number of relations who all inherited by right of relationship the power of opening sesame and shutting it tight the yahyahwehs became a very numerous tribe also and exercised the same privilege this commander of the faithful is the reason why in that distant part of the dominions of the sultan of the indies all true believers kiss the ground seven hundred and seventy-seven times on hearing the magic words de brett's peerage why the talisman of office is always possessed in common by the three great races of the scarli tapas the yahyahwehs 
and the Jobianas, why the public affairs, great and small, and all the national enterprises, both by land and sea, are conducted on a system which is the highest peak of the mountain of justice, and which always succeeds, why the people of that country are serenely satisfied with themselves, and things in general are unquestionably the envy of surrounding nations, and cannot fail in the inevitable order of events to flourish to the end of the world, why all these great truths are incontrovertible, and why all who dispute them receive the bastinado as atheists and rebels. Here Hansardade concluded the story of the forty thieves, and said, If my lord the sultan will deign to hear another narrative from the lips of the lowest of his servants, I have adventures yet more surprising than these to relate. Adventures that are worthy to be written in letters of gold. By Allah, exclaimed the sultan, whose hand had been upon his scimitar several times during the previous recital, and whose eyes had menaced Palmerston until the soul of that vizier had turned to water. What thou hast told but now deserves to be recorded in letters of brass. Hansardade was proceeding. Sire, in the great plain at the feet of the mountains of Kaskar, which is seven weeks' journey across, when Brother Toon interrupted her, Sister, it is nearly daybreak, and if you are not asleep, you ought to be. I pray you, dear sister, tell us at present no more of these stories that you know so well, but hold your tongue and go to bed. Hansardade was silent, and the Sultan arose in a very indifferent humour, and gloomily walked out in great doubt whether he would let her live on any consideration over another day. End of the Thousand and One Humbugs, Part Two, from Household Words, Volume Eleven. Recording by Noel Badrian, County Offaly, Ireland. The Thousand and One Humbugs, Part Three, from Household Words, Volume Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5 The Thousand and One Humbugs, Part 3 From Household Words, Volume 11, by Charles Dickens On the following night, Hansardade proceeded with The Story of the Talkative Barber. In the great plain which lies at the feet of the mountains of Kaskar, and which is seven weeks' journey across, there is a city where a lame young man was once invited, with other guests, to an entertainment. Upon his entrance, the company already assembled rose up to do him honour, and the host, taking him by the hand, invited him to sit down with the rest upon the estrade. At the same time, the master of the house greeted his visitor with the salutation, Allah is Allah, there is no Allah but Allah, may his name be praised, and may Allah be with you. Sire, the lame young man, who had the appearance of one that had suffered much, was about to comply with the invitation of the master of the house to seat himself upon the estrade, 
with the rest of the company when he suddenly perceived among them a barber he instantly flew back with every token of abhorrence and made towards the door the master of the house amazed at this behaviour stopped him sir exclaimed the young man i adjure you by mecca do not stop me let me go i cannot without horror look upon that abominable barber upon him and upon the whole of his relations be the curse of allah in return for all i have endured from his intolerable levity and from his talk never being to the point or purpose with these words the lame young man again made violently towards the door the guests were astonished at this behaviour and began to have a very bad opinion of the barber the master of the house so courteously entreated the lame young man to recount to the company the causes of this strong dislike that at length he could not refuse averting his head so that he might not see the barber he proceeded gentlemen you must know that this accursed barber is the cause of my being crippled and is the occasion of all my misfortunes i became acquainted with him in the following manner i am called publique or the many-headed i am one of a large family who have undergone an infinite variety of adventures and afflictions one day i chanced to sit down to rest on a seat in a narrow lane when a lattice over against me opened and i obtained a glimpse of the most ravishing beauty in the world after watering a pot of budding flowers which stood in the window she perceived me and modestly withdrew but not before she had directed towards me a glance so full of charms that i screamed aloud with love and became insensible for a considerable time when i came to myself i directed a favourite slave to make inquiries among the neighbours and on pain of death to bring me an exact account of the young lady's family and condition the slave acquitted himself so well that he informed me within an hour that the young lady's name was fair gavornment and that she was the daughter of the chief cadi the violence of my passion became so great that i took to my bed that evening fell into a fever and was reduced to the brink of death when an old lady of my acquaintance came to see me son said she after observing me attentively i perceive that your disease is love inform me who is the object of your affections and rely upon me to bring you together this address of the good old ladies had such an effect on me that i immediately rose quite restored in health and began to dress myself in a word continued the lame young man addressing the company assembled in the house of the citizen of the plain at the feet of the mountains of kaskar and always keeping his head in such a position as that he could not see the barber the old lady exerted herself in my behalf with such effect that on the very next day she returned commissioned by the enchantress of my soul to appoint a meeting between us i arranged to attire myself in my richest clothes and dispatched the same favourite slave with instructions to fetch a barber 
who knew his business and who could skilfully prepare me for the interview i was to have for the first time in my life with fair government gentlemen the slave returned with the wretch whom you see here sir began this accursed barber whom a malignant destiny thus inflicted on me how do you do i hope you are pretty well i do not wish to praise myself but you are lucky to have sent for me my name is premia in me you behold an accomplished diplomatist a first-rate statesman a frisky speaker an easy shaver a touch-and-go joker a giver of the go-by to all complainers and above all a member of the aristocracy of barbers sir i am a lineal descendant of the prophet and consequently a born barber all my relations friends acquaintances connections and associates are likewise lineal descendants of the prophet and consequently born barbers every one as i said but the other day to Layardine, or the troublesome the aristocracy may allah confound thy aristocracy and thee cried i will you begin to shave me gentlemen proceeded the lame young man the barber had brought a showy case with him and he consumed such an immense time in pretending to open it that i was well nigh fretted to death i will not be shaved at all said i sir returned the unabashed barber you sent for me to shave you and with your pardon i will do it whether you like it or not ah sir you have not so good an opinion of me as your father had i knew your father and he appreciated me i said a thousand pleasant things to him and rendered him a thousand services and he adored me just heaven he would exclaim you are an exhaustible fountain of wisdom no man can plumb the depths of your profundity my dear sir i would reply you do me more honour than i deserve still as a lineal descendant of the prophet and one of the aristocracy of born barbers i will with the help of allah shave you pretty close before i have done with you you may guess gentlemen in my state of expectancy with my heart set on fair government and the precious time running by how i cursed this impertinent chattering on the part of the barber barber of mischief barber of sin barber of false pretence barber of froth and bubble said i stamping my foot upon the ground will you begin to do your work fair and softly sir said he let me count you out first with that he counted from one to thirty-eight with great deliberation and then laughed heartily and went out to look at the weather when the barber returned he went on prattling as before you're in high feather sir said he i am glad to see you look so well but how can you be otherwise than flourishing after having sent for me i am called the careless i am not like disease who draws blood nor like darby who claps on blisters nor like johnny who works with the square and rule i am the easy shaver and i care for nobody i can do anything shall i dance the dance of mr pitt to please you or shall i sing the song of mr folks 
or joke the joke of Jomilla. Honour me with your attention while I do all three. The barber, continued the lame young man with a groan, danced the dance of Mr. Pitt, and sang the song of Mr. Folks, and joked the joke of Jomilla, and then began with fresh impertinences. Sir, said he, with a lofty flourish, when Britine first at heaven's command rose from out of the azure main, this was the charter of the land, and guardian angels sang this strain. Singing, as first lord was a waller king, the office guarding around, no end of born barbers he picked up and found. Says he, I will load them with silver and gold, for the country's a donkey, and as such is sold. At this point I could bear his insolence no longer, but starting up cried, Barber of hollowness, by what consideration am I restrained from falling upon and strangling thee? Calmly, sir, said he, let me count you out first. He then played his former game of counting from one to under forty, and again laughed heartily, and went out to take the height of the sun, and make a calculation of the state of the wind that he might know whether it was an auspicious time to begin to shave me. I took the opportunity, said the young man, of flying from my house so darkened by the fatal presence of this detestable barber, and of repairing with my utmost speed to the house of the Cadi. But the appointed hour was long past, and fair government had withdrawn no one knew whither. As I stood in the street cursing my evil destiny and execrating this intolerable barber, I heard a hue and cry. Looking in the direction whence it came, I saw the diabolical barber, attended by an immense troop of his relations and friends, the lineal descendants of the prophet and aristocracy of born barbers, all offering a reward to any one who would stop me, and all proclaiming the unhappy public to be their natural prey and rightful property. I turned and fled. They jostled and bruised me cruelly among them, and I became maimed, as you see. I utterly detest, abominate, and abjure this barber, and ever since and ever more I totally renounce him. With these concluding words, the lame young man arose in a sullen way that had something very threatening in it, and left the company. Commander of the Faithful, when the lame young man was gone, the guests, turning to the barber, who wore his turban very much on one side, and smiled complacently, asked him what he had to say for himself. The barber immediately danced the dance of Mr. Pitt, and sang the song of Mr. Folks, and joked the joke of Jomilla. Gentlemen, said he, not at all out of breath after these performances, it is true that I am called the careless. Permit me to recount to you, as a lively diversion, what happened to a twin brother of that young man who has so undeservedly abused me, in connection with a near relation of mine. No one objecting, the barber related, the story of the Barmicide feast. The young man's twin brother, Gulled Public, was in very poor circumstances, and hardly knew how to live. In his reduced condition, he was fain to go about to great men, begging them to take him in, and to do them justice, 
they did it extensively one day in the course of his poverty-stricken wanderings he came to a large house with two high towers a spacious hall an abundance of fine gilding statuary and painting although the house was far from finished he could see enough to assure him that enormous sums of money must be lavished upon it he inquired who was the master of this wealthy mansion and received for information that he was a certain barmecide the barmecide gentlemen is my near relation and like myself a lineal descendant of the prophet and a born barber the young man's twin brother passed through the gateway and crept submissively onward until he came into a spacious apartment where he descried the barmecide sitting at the upper end in the post of honour the barmecide asked the young man's brother what he wanted my lord replied he in a pitiful tone i am sore distressed and have none but high and mighty nobles like yourself to help me that much at least is true returned the barmecide there is no help save in high and mighty nobles it is the appointment of allah but what is your distress my lord said the young man's brother i am fasting from all the nourishment i want and whatever you may please to think am in a dangerous extremity a very little more at any moment and you would be astonished at the figure i should make is it so indeed inquired the barmecide sir returned the young man's brother i swear by heaven and earth that it is so and heaven and earth are every hour drawing nearer to the discovery that it is so alas poor man replied the barmecide pretending to have an interest in him ho oh, boy bring us of the best here and let us not spare our liberal measures this poor man shall make good cheer without delay though no boy appeared gentlemen and though there was no sign of the liberal measures of which the barmecide spoke so ostentatiously the young man's brother gulled public endeavoured to fall in with the barmecide's humour come cried the barmecide feigning to pour water on his hands let us begin fair and fresh how do you like this purity ah my lord returned gulled public imitating the barmecide's action this is indeed purity this is in truth a delicious beginning then let us proceed said the barmecide seeming to dry his hands with this smoking dish of reform how do you like it fat at the same time he pretended to hand choice morsels to the young man's brother take your fill of it exclaimed the barmecide there is plenty here do not spare it it was cooked for you may allah prolong your life my lord said gold public you are liberal indeed the barmecide having boasted in this pleasant way of his smoking dish of reform which had no existence affected to call for another dish ho cried he clapping his hands bring in those educational kabobs then he imitated the action of putting some upon the plate of the young man's brother and went on how do you like these educational kabobs the cook who made them is a treasure 
are they not justly seasoned are they not so honestly made as to be adapted to all digestions you want them very much i know and have wanted them this long time do you enjoy them and here is a delicious mess called forine legion eat of it also for i pride myself upon it and expect it to bring me great respect and much friendship from distant lands and this pilau of church endowments and duties which you see so beautifully divided pray how do you approve of this pilau it was invented on your account and no expense has been spared to render it to your taste ho boy bring in that ragout now here my friend is a ragout called law of partnership it is expressly made for poor men's eating and i particularly pride myself upon it this is indeed a dish at which you may cut and come again and boy hasten to set before my good friend gulled public the rare stew of colonial spices minced crime hashed poverty swollen liver of ignorance stale confusion rotten tape and chopped up bombast steeped in official sauce and garnished with a great deal of tongue and a very little brains the crowning dish of which my dear friend never can have enough and upon which he thrives so well but you don't eat with an appetite my brother said the barmecide i fear the repast is hardly to your liking pardon me my benefactor returned the guest whose jaws ached with pretending to eat i am full almost to the throat well then said the barmecide since you have dined so well try the dessert here are apples of discord from the horse guards and admiralty here is abundance of the famous fruit from the dead sea that turns to ashes on the lips here are the dates from the peninsula in great profusion and here is a fig for the nation eat and be happy my lord replied the object of his merriment i am quite worn out by your liberality and can bear no more gentlemen continued the loquacious barber when the humorous barmecide my near relation linearly descended from the prophet had brought his guest to this pass he clapped his hands three times to summon around him his slaves and instructed them to force in reality the vile stew of which he had spoken down the throat of the hungry gulled public together with a nauseous mess called double income tax and to put bitters in his drink strew dust on his head blacken his face shave his eyebrows pluck away his beard insult him and make merry with him he then caused him to be attired in a shameful dress and set upon an ass with his face to the tail and in this state be publicly exposed with the inscription around his neck this is the punishment of gold public who asked for nourishment and said he wanted it such is the present droll condition of this person while my near relation the barmecide sits in the post of honour with his turban very much on one side enjoying the joke which i think you will all admit is an excellent one hence are dead having made an end of the discourse of the loquacious barber 
would have instantly begun another story had not brother toon shut her up with dear sister it will be shortly daybreak get to bed and be quiet end of the thousand and one humbugs part three from household words volume eleven recording by noel badrian county offaly ireland A Curious Misprint in the Edinburgh Review This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5 A Curious Misprint in the Edinburgh Review by Charles Dickens the Edinburgh Review, in an article in its last number, on The License of Modern Novelists, is angry with Mr. Dickens and other modern novelists for not confining themselves to the mere amusement of their readers, and for testifying in their works that they seriously feel the interest of true Englishmen in the welfare and honour of their country. To them should be left the making of easy occasional books for idle young gentlemen and ladies to take up and lay down on sofas drawing-room tables and window-seats to the edinburgh review should be reserved the settlement of all social and political questions and the strangulation of all complainers mr thackeray may write upon snobs but there must be none in the superior government departments there is no positive objection to mr reed having to do in a platonic way with a scottish fishwoman or so but he must by no means connect himself with present discipline. That is the inalienable property of official personages, and until Mr. Reed can show that he has so much a year paid quarterly for understanding or not understanding the subject, it is none of his, and it is impossible that he can be allowed to deal with it. The name of Mr. Dickens is at the head of this page, and the hand of Mr. Dickens writes this paper. He will shelter himself under no affectation of being any one else, in having a few words of earnest but tempered remonstrance with the Edinburgh Review, before pointing out its curious misprint. Temperate for the honour of literature, temperate because of the great services which the Edinburgh Review rendered in its time to good literature and good government, temperate in remembrance of the loving affection of Geoffrey, the friendship of Sidney Smith, and the faithful sympathy of both. The license of modern novelists is a taking title, but it suggests another, the license of modern reviewers. Mr. Dickens' libel on the wonderfully exact and vigorous English government, which is always ready for any emergency, and which, as everybody knows, has never shown itself to be at all feeble at a pinch within in the memory of men, is license in a novelist. Will the Edinburgh Review forgive Mr. Dickens for taking the liberty to point out what is license in a reviewer? Quotation. Even the catastrophe in Little Dorrit is evidently borrowed from the recent fall of houses in Tottenham Court Road, which happens to have appeared in the newspapers at a convenient period. End quotation. Thus the reviewer. The novelist begs to ask him whether there is no license in his writing those words and stating that assumption as a truth, when any man accustomed to the critical examination of a book cannot fail, attentively turning over the pages of Little Dorrit, 
to observe that the catastrophes carefully prepared for them from the very first presentation of the old house in the story that when Rigaud, the man who is crushed by the fall of the house first enters it hundreds of pages before the end he is beset by a mysterious fear and shuddering that the rotten and crazy state of the house is laboriously kept before the reader whenever the house is shown that the way to the demolition of the man and the house together is paved all through the book with a painful minuteness and reiterated care of preparation the necessity of which in order that the thread may be kept in the reader's mind through nearly two years is one of the adverse incidents of that serial form of publication it may be nothing to the question that mr dickens now publicly declares on his word and honour that that catastrophe was written was engraven on steel was printed had passed through the hands of compositors readers for the press and pressmen and was in type and in proof in the printing-house of messrs bradbury and evans before the accident in tottenham court road occurred but it is much to the question that an honourable reviewer might have easily traced this out in the internal evidence of the book itself before he stated for a fact what is utterly and entirely in every particular and respect untrue more if the editor of the edinburgh review unbending from the severe official duties of a blameless branch of the circumlocution office had happened to condescend to cast his eye on the passage and had referred even its mechanical probabilities and improbabilities to his publishers those experienced gentlemen must have warned him that he was getting into danger must have told him that on a comparison of dates and with a reference to the number printed of little dorrit and which that very incident illustrated and to the date of the publication of the completed book in a volume they hardly perceived how mr dickens could have waited with such a desperate microborism for a fall of houses in tottenham court road to get him out of his difficulties and yet could have come up to time with the needful punctuality does the edinburgh review make no charges at random does it live in a blue and yellow glass house and yet throw such big stones over the roof will the licensed reviewer apologize to the licensed novelist for his little circumlocution office will he examine the justice of his own general charges as well as mr dickens's will he apply his own words to himself and come to the conclusion that it really is a little curious to consider what qualifications a man ought to possess before he could with any kind of propriety hold this language the novelist now proceeds to the reviewer's curious misprint the reviewer in his laudation of the great official departments and in his indignant denial of there being any trace of a circumlocution office to be detected among them all begs to know what does mr dickens think of the whole organization of the post office and of the system of cheap postage taking st martin's le grand in tow the wrathful circumlocution steamer puffing at mr dickens to crush him with all the weight of that first-rate vessel demands to take a single and well-known example how does he count for the career of mr rowland hill a gentleman in a private and not very conspicuous position writes a pamphlet recommending what amounted to a revolution in a most important department of the government did the circumlocution office neglect him traduce him break his heart and ruin his fortune they adopted his scheme 
and gave him the leading share in carrying it out. And yet this is the government which Mr. Dickens declares to be a sworn foe to talent, and a systematic enemy to ingenuity. The curious misprint here is the name of Mr. Rowland Hill. Some other and perfectly different name must have been sent to the printer. Mr. Rowland Hill, why, if Mr. Rowland Hill were not, in toughness, a man of a hundred thousand, if he had not had in the struggles of his career a steadfastness of purpose overriding all sensitiveness, and steadily staring grim despair out of countenance, the circumlocution office would have made a dead man of him long and long ago. Mr. Dickens, among his other darings, dares to state that the circumlocution office most heartily hated Mr. Rowland Hill, that the circumlocution office most characteristically opposed him as long as opposition was in any way possible. That the circumlocution office would have been most devoutly glad if it could have harried Mr. Rowland Hill's soul out of his body and consigned him and his troublesome penny project to the grave together. Mr. Rowland Hill, now see the impossibility of Mr. Rowland Hill being the name which the Edinburgh Review sent to the printer. It may have relied on the forbearance of Mr. Dickens toward living gentlemen, for his being mute on a mighty job that was jobbed in that very post-office when Mr. Rowland Hill was taboo there, and it shall not rely upon his courtesy in vain, though there be breezes on the southern side of Midstrand, London, in which the scent of it is yet strong on quarter days. But the Edinburgh Review never can have put up Mr. Rowland Hill for the putting down of Mr. Dickens' idle fiction of a circumlocution office. The license would have been too great, the absurdity would have been too transparent, the circumlocution office dictation and partisanship would have been much too manifest. The circumlocution office adopted his scheme, and gave him the leading share in carrying it out. The words are clearly not applicable to Mr. Rowland Hill. Does the reviewer remember the history of Mr. Rowland Hill's scheme? The novelist does, and will state it here exactly. In spite of its being one of the eternal decrees that the reviewer, in virtue of his license, shall know everything, and that the novelist, in virtue of his license, shall know nothing. Mr. Rowland Hill published his pamphlet on the establishment of one uniform penny postage in the beginning of the year 1837. Mr. Wallace, member for Greenock, who had long been opposed to the then-existing post-office system, moved for a committee on the subject. Its appointment was opposed by the government, or, let us say, the circumlocution office, but was afterward conceded. Before that committee, the circumlocution office and Mr. Rowland Hill were perpetually in conflict on questions of fact and it invariably turned out that Mr. Rowland Hill was always right in his facts, and that the circumlocution office was always wrong. Even on so plain a point, as the average number of letters at that very time passing through the post office, Mr. Rowland Hill was right, and the circumlocution office was wrong. Says the Edinburgh Review in what it calls a general way, the circumlocution office adopted his scheme. Did it? Not just then, certainly, for nothing whatever was done, arising out of the inquiries of that committee. But it happened that the Whig government afterward came to be beaten on the Jamaica question, by reason of the radicals voting against them. 
sir robert peel was commanded to form a government but failed in consequence of the difficulties that arose our readers will remember them about the ladies of the bedchamber the ladies of the bedchamber brought the whigs in again and even the radicals being always for the destruction of everything made it one of the conditions of their rendering their support to the new whig government that the penny postage should be adopted this was two years after the appointment of the committee that is to say in eighteen hundred and thirty-nine the circumlocution office had to that time done nothing toward the penny postage but oppose delay contradict and show itself uniformly wrong they adopted his scheme and gave him the leading share in carrying it out of course they gave him the leading share in carrying it out then at the time when they adopted it and took the credit and popularity of it not so in eighteen hundred and thirty-nine mr rowland hill was appointed not to the post office but to the treasury was he appointed to the treasury to carry out his own scheme no he was appointed to advise in other words to instruct the ignorant circumlocution office how to do without him if it by any means could on the tenth of january eighteen hundred and forty the penny postage system was adopted then of course the circumlocution office gave mr rowland hill the leading share in carrying it out not exactly but it gave him the leading share in carrying himself out for in eighteen hundred and forty two it summarily dismissed mr rowland hill altogether when the circumlocution office had come to that pass on its patriotic course so much admired by the edinburgh review of protecting and patronizing mr rowland hill whom any child who is not a novelist can perceive to have been its peculiar protege the public mind always perverse became much excited on the subject sir thomas wilde moved for another committee circumlocution office interposed nothing was done the public subscribed and presented to mr rowland hill sixteen thousand pounds circumlocution office remained true to itself and its functions did nothing would do nothing it was not until eighteen hundred and forty six four years afterward that mr rowland hill was appointed to a place in the post office was he appointed even then to the leading share in carrying out his scheme he was permitted to creep into the post office up the back stairs through having a place created for him this post of dignity and honour this circumlocution office crown was called secretary to the postmaster-general there being already a secretary to the post office of whom the circumlocution office had declared as its reason for dismissing mr rowland hill that his functions and mr rowland hill's could not be made to harmonize they did not harmonize they were in perpetual discord penny postage is but one reform of a number of post-office reforms effected by mr rowland hill and these for eight years longer were thwarted and opposed by the circumlocution office tooth and nail it was not until eighteen hundred and fifty-four fourteen years after the appointment of mr wallace's committee that mr rowland hill having as was openly stated at the time threatened to resign and to give his reasons for doing so was at last made sole secretary at the post-office and the inharmonious secretary of whom no more shall be said 
was otherwise disposed of. It is only since that date of 1854 that such reforms as the amalgamation of the general and district posts, the division of London into ten towns, the earlier delivery of letters all over the country, the book and parcels post, the increase of letter-receiving houses everywhere, and the management of the post-office with a greatly increased efficiency have been brought about by Mr. Rowland Hill for the public benefit and the public convenience. If the Edinburgh Review could seriously want to know how Mr. Dickens accounts for the career of Mr. Rowland Hill, Mr. Dickens would account for it by his being a Birmingham man of such imperturbable steadiness and strength of purpose that the circumlocution office, by its utmost endeavours, very feebly tried, could not weaken his determination, sharpen his razor, or break his heart. By his being a man in whose behalf the public gallantry was roused, and the public spirit awakened, by his having a project, in its nature so plainly and directly tending to the immediate benefit of every man, woman, and child in the state, that the circumlocution office could not blind them, though it could for a time cripple it. By his having thus, from the first to the last, made his way in spite of the circumlocution office, and dead against it as his natural enemy. But the name is evidently a curious misprint and an unfortunate mistake. The novelist will await the reviewer's correction of the press, and substitution of the right name. Will the Edinburgh Review also take its next opportunity of manfully expressing its regret that in too distempered a zeal for the circumlocution office it has been betrayed, as to that Tottenham Court Road assertion, into a hasty substitution of untruth for truth, the discredit of which it might have saved itself if it had been sufficiently cool and considerate to be simply just? It will, too, possibly have much to do by that time in championing its circumlocution office in new triumphs on the voyage out to India. God knows that the novelist has his private as well as his public reasons for writing the foreboding with no triumphant heart. But even party occupation, the reviewer's license, or the editorial pearl, does not absolve a gentleman from a gentleman's duty, a gentleman's restraint, and a gentleman's generosity. Mr. Dickens will willingly do his best to account for any new case of circumlocution office protection that the review may make a gauntlet of. He may be trusted to do so, he hopes, with a just respect for the review, for himself and for his calling, beyond the sound, healthy, legitimate uses and influences of which he has no purpose to serve and no ambition in life to gratify. 1857 End of a curious misprint in the Edinburgh Review, read by Petra. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Personal from Household Words, 12th June, 1858. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5, Personal, from Household Words, 12th June, 1858, by Charles Dickens. Three and twenty years have passed since I entered on my present relations with the public. They began when I was so young that I find them to have existed for nearly a quarter of a century. Through all that time I have tried to be as faithful to the public as they have been to me. It was my duty never to trifle with them, or deceive them, or presume upon their favor, or do anything with it, but work hard to justify it. I have always endeavored to discharge that duty. My conspicuous position has often made me the subject of fabulous stories and unaccountable statements. Occasionally such things have chafed me, or even wounded me, but I have always accepted them as the shadows inseparable from the light of my notoriety and success. I have never obtruded any such personal uneasiness of mine upon the generous aggregate of my audience. For the first time in my life, and I believe for the last, I now deviate from the principle I have so long observed, by presenting myself in my own journal in my own private character, and entreating all my brethren, as they deem that they have reason to think well of me, and to know that I am a man who has ever been unaffectedly true to our common calling, to lend their aid to the dissemination of my present words. Some domestic trouble of mine, of long standing, on which I will make no further remark than that it claims to be respected as being of a sacredly private nature, has lately been brought to an arrangement which involves no anger or ill-will of any kind, and the whole origin, progress, and surrounding circumstances of which have been, throughout, within the knowledge of my children. It is amicably composed, and its details have now but to be forgotten by those concerned in it. By some means arising out of wickedness, or out of folly, or out of inconceivable wild chance, or out of all three, this trouble has been made the occasion of misrepresentations, most grossly false, most monstrous, and most cruel, involving not only me, but innocent persons dear to my heart, and innocent persons of whom I have no knowledge, if indeed they have any existence, and so widely spread that I doubt if one reader in a thousand will peruse these lines by whom some touch of the breath of these slanders will not have passed like an unwholesome air. Those who know me in my nature need no assurance under my hand that such calumnies are as irreconcilable with me as they are in their frantic incoherence with one another. But there is a great multitude who know me through my writings, and who do not know me otherwise, and I cannot bear that one of them should be left in doubt or hazard of doubt 
through my poorly shrinking from taking the unusual means to which I now resort of circulating the truth. I most solemnly declare then, and this I do both in my own name and in my wife's name, that all the lately whispered rumors touching the trouble at which I have glanced are abominably false, and that whosoever repeats one of them after this denial will lie as willfully and as foully as it is possible for any false witness to lie before heaven and earth. Charles Dickens End of Personal from Household Words 12 June 1858 Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, USA End of Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5